Before we get started with my next guest, I just wanted to give you just a little bit of background. I met Jara about four or five years ago when she called upon me to help her with her nutrition and toning. And that is when I found out her story, that she was born a man with a penis and testicles. And way later in her life, she found out that she also had a uterus and fallopian tubes. Oh my Lord, what a life struggle for a person to figure out. Without further to do, here she is. Hello, beautiful people. So tonight we're going to be speaking to Jara. And I gave you a little bit of information before we started. So I think we're just going to go ahead and welcome Jara and take off from there. So hi, Jara. Hey, how are you doing tonight, Christy? Um, I'm doing good. Was just a little bit rushed. It's been a it's been a, been a rough a, week. It has. It has. It has. A lot of travel. Um, I just got back from Miami. Before I get into that, I want to say I am humbled to be a part of your podcast and thank you for inviting me to this. Um again, I'm just humbled to oh, you're so welcome. This is amazing. So you know, um, I was thinking that it's been about four years ago that I met you. It was, yes, yep. And and I was so intrigued and so wanted to become your friend, but then you were traveling and whatever, so we didn't get to talk very much, and so lots happened in your life since oh, then. A lot has happened, <laughs> yes. But just so you know, I've not forgotten you or ever quit thinking about you, so I'm super blessed to have you on here. You are so amazing and such an amazing artist. I appreciate you having me. It's it's a blessing in my life as well, you know, to to get into this subject. And, you know, I feel like with my life experience, I'm a subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do want to start off with saying, um, if there's somebody out there listening to this tonight and you feel that you are in a position then I want you to take the steps the right way. I don't want you to try to do this on your own. Um, If you're in a position where you are compromised, there are resources out there to help you. If you are in a position where you are being threatened to lose your home because of your decisions, um, because of who you are, uh, contact these resources immediately. Uh, in your area, you know, if 
and I and I do this with uh, with a lot of radio shows. If you feel that you can't go on, I want you to call the National Suicide Prevention Line or nine one one because there's nothing more important than you and making a decision like that, which happens a lot in my community. Um, it's it's a permanent solution to a temp- temporary problem. And we lose a lot of people to that because they just don't know how to live. So that's what this is really, really important to me because I have the ability right now to connect with people and connect with the non-trans public and dispel some rumors and put some information out there that's good information. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, I think we're going to be a little bit confused because I thought you were actually talking to me in case I got some I um, am. slack. I am. I am, but listening, then, um, you know, I want them to, I want them to have, you know, some type of resource, you know, to go to. Right. And, so first we need to tell them what we're talking about. Okay. All right. So we were going to call it Gender Identity 101. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and I'm not sure what I'm going to end up calling it, but what I'd really like to do, because I did a lot of reading up on you. Okay. Um, and I think one of the most important things to start out with is to explain what persistent, is it Mullerian? Persistent Mullerian duct, duct syndrome. syndrome is. Yes. And, and then yes. Let's, let's go from that and then into your beginning. Okay. And then. Okay. okay. All right. So persistent Mullerian duct syndrome is a condition where a human being is born with reproductive parts of both sexes. Now, it occurs when the Mullerian duct doesn't absorb and a male fetus is formed. So in my case, I found out later in life with this diagnosis of persistent Mullerian duct syndrome, after I had already started transitioning um, from male to female, because I lived the first portion of my life um, assigned a male. And that's basically all I knew. So I found out later in life through an accident that um, this condition existed. And I was already in transition, already had completed about 16 months of the WPATH standards for transition. And this piece of information comes along. So I think we need to go back, though, to when you started feeling okay. to, that you weren't a female and the reactions that you got and what you did about it. Well, I actually, from childhood, had this inclination, this feeling that... I would say probably around six or seven years old, maybe a little later, that something wasn't exactly correct. So I... Like what? Like what were, you, what were you feeling? What were you doing? I was feeling like I wanted 
in my life or I needed in my life to make me happy. The, the stereotypical things that my sisters were doing, um, those types of activities, you know, to fill the, the physical space. But also there was this, this want or this desire that was always there to, to interact as, as any other female. Now, central Illinois where I grew up is a, Illinois is itself a very liberal state. Now, central Illinois can be a very conservative area and a very liberal state. My parents are extremely conservative, but extremely open as well. But I grew up in a household where I couldn't express that identity. So I basically went through childhood looking in the mirror every day at myself saying, this isn't who you are. You're you know, you're something else. So I, I really embraced it and I embraced the fact that I could live with my male self and bury who I was, because that's kind of the family I grew up in. It was, you know, pink is for girls, blue is for boys and, you know, act accordingly. So do you think that that's kind of rare for a seven-year-old to already recognize that? I think it's, I think it's extremely rare. Yeah, I think, me too. I, I think it's extremely rare. And you, I think you have a heightened sense of identity, you know, that was pre-pubescent years, you know, but I, but I knew something inside me was just aching. And a good, a good analogy or a good story is my aunt and grandmother, we lived in a, in a farming community. So our family was within a mile of each other. Okay. And for the longest time, you know, they babysat us kids. Uh, my parents were farming and they had this box of dolls. So birthday parties were always at grandma's house, you know, typical Midwest thing. So I was at grandma's house and I was playing in the hallway with these dolls, which I had played with a million times while I was down there mowing her grass or just spending time with her. Now were your sisters, were your sisters with you? Oh, absolutely. The whole family was there that night. So So I'm playing. Did they play with you? No, they were, they were older. So yeah, they were kind of hanging out with, you know, my uncle and my brother and, that whole group, you know, was kind of doing their, their teenage thing. So I'm in the hallway playing with these dolls and you know, I'm just having a good old time and not bothering anyone. And I remember a family member and I won't be specific stepped into the hallway and said, dolls are for girls. What are you doing playing with dolls? You're a boy. And I, at that point in time, I knew for the first time in my life that I could not express myself. Now, my grandmother, who was actually my great-great-grandmother, and her sister, which was my great-great-great-aunt, had these dolls, and they'd saved them from when my sisters were growing up, and they were in the closet, and they really didn't care. You know, in their generation, there was nothing about gender identity, and they were extremely open about everything. Now, 
they let me play with these dolls on a, on a daily basis. You know, here's these two women, you know, they're in their sixties and seventies and their grandchild or nephew comes over, you know, for, you know, to mow the grass or just to hang out. And this was a plaything. You know, this was a, this was a toy. And they promoted this because they felt, I think, one, I think they kind of knew. And two, they, they thought of is, you know, as normal as, you know, skills building for, you know, a little boy to play with dolls was no big deal to them. But to the male side of my family, it was, it was, it was a sin. It was, why, why would you do that? See, that's and, interesting because my, I, you know, I had a son, mm-hmm. a younger son, and his only friend in the neighborhood was right next door and was a girl that was like nine months older than him. And okay. they, they grew up together and they took turns. They had to, to get along because she would, she would actually threaten him to go home and never play with him again if he didn't play with her, with her dolls. And he right. always, he was always picking up a basketball, a baseball, you know, and, you know, he like came in crying one morning. He was like three at the time, but oh. like came in crying saying, mommy, she won't play with me. She went home. And at that point in time, now I didn't think anything about it because I, he always played with everybody. But I felt like it was fair for him to and her to take turns playing with, the, you know, whatever the other one wanted to play. Right. So, so I just said, well, you know what? I bet you if you don't go over there and beg her to come back and just leave it alone that she'll be back. Yeah. Because she'd been doing this for like a year. And lo and behold, she came back and said, okay, I'll play with you. And from that day forward, and they're still friends to this day, like best friends. They're in their 20s. Right. Um, look after each other. And there's, you know, I mean, he's he's even went over there and helped her put makeup on. And she's put makeup on him. <laughs> uh, and that's that's amazing. And there's nothing thought of it. No, there isn't. Nothing. And I think a lot of that is the the general the generational shift um, that has occurred, and this this generation uh, that you're talking about that's you know it's 20 right now in 2021. That's let's face it, they've been through a lot in the last couple of years. But mm-hmm. even before that. They were the ones that, and and I coined them the honest generation. Now, their take on life is pretty much this. I don't care who you are. Just don't lie to me and tell me you're something you're not. Because that generation has taken it to a different level. And they're supportive of everyone, which I think is probably a really good thing. And I think that that generation will be the one that changes a lot of the world. And then this next generation behind them, if you're part of the LGBTQIA plus community, it's not even going to be a thing. It's, 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 not even, it's not even on their radar. They see you as a person 
just be honest with them, you know, and don't tell them you're something you're not. And I, and I think that honesty is what they thrive on. And I think that's how we raised them. Okay. So that's what I was going to say. So when I'm talking back 20 years ago, and this is how I, I actually taught my son and, and the neighbor lady taught her daughter um, to, to play with each other. No, that sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Not really meaning that way, though. I mean, they were little kids. So in other words, to share the toys and share what each other wanted to do. But exactly. Um, but I, I think it starts then. Like how how your parents perceive it and and perceive it to you. So like I didn't dress my son in any right. certain color. Right. You know. Right. Um now I didn't dress him in pink only because he was so pretty that everybody called him a girl. Right. Um but you know, the yellows, all the other colors. Uh t- today he dresses in pink like you wouldn't believe. He loves pink. Um, it's it's an amazing fashion it's, color. It, it is an amazing fashion color, and he looks really good in it. He's you know, he's got uh, an olive toned skin that gets really dark, and it pops the pink, and you know whatever. But I guess what I'm saying is it it all I I think to begin with it starts at home, and and what we tell our children and how we raise them in order. And, and I'm talking about racism everything everything yes um and then now 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 you're talking about the generation now and yes when he was in high school was when all the high school kids were trying out these things that were now put in front of them not to say that that's who they were but they wanted to try it to see if they were right and he didn't judge one way or the other. He just didn't have any desire to try it. But his neighbor did. And, right. um, and he supported her. And, and then she decided after nine months it wasn't for her and went back to what she was doing. <laughs> you, exactly. you know, but, but I'm just saying, so, so now the generation is like, oh, there's so much out there with social media. We got to try this. They are on the information superhighway and they have <laughs> so much technology at their fingertips mm-hmm. from their phones to Xbox, to gaming on different systems, different levels, um, you know, to, just every platform is available. The, what there's, I can count twenty social media platforms from TikTok to Instagram to um, you know very few are on Facebook anymore. There's a few, but you know they migrate to these new social media platforms, and they they have absolutely the entire planet at their fingertips. Now, when you and I grew up, we had basically Pong on Atari. And the internet wasn't even a word yet. I mean, right. it was a. Right. It, it was still at. Either was know, a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, cell, cellular phones. Um, I remember the bag phone coming in, right, and thinking right. that is so James Bond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
you know, I mean, the technology was there, like, you know, high end people had that technology, but central Illinois, we weren't going to see that for, you know, 25 more years. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and watching this generation become so intelligent, they're, they're actually extremely intelligent. A lot of you, oh, they just sit around and play games all day. These kids today learned more before kindergarten than we probably learned up to fifth grade. Right. That's how much information they have at their, yeah. and I, and I've talked to a lot of teachers and they're like, you know, the curriculum is a curriculum and it's basically just a guide. And by the time we get these kids, you would not believe what they already know. And, you know, this kid starts school, you know, and, and the first thing they walk in and they're like, um, you know, kindergartners that, you know, can count to a hundred on day one or more. And, you know, some are even doing math in kindergarten. And I, and I look at that and go, we didn't even do math until like second grade. Right. So, you know, and it's, 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 it's this generation with all this information, which is a two-edged sword. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a veritable double-edged sword to have a lot of information at your fingertips because where there's information, there is misinformation. Right. And, you know, you don't get yang without yang, but we've got a, we've got a situation that, you know, the, these kids have pretty much figured out and they kind of filter out the BS. I think they've, they've become masters of that and they don't react. They're very non-reactive. Um, this new generation, I, in business, I deal with a lot of younger people that are in sub-management positions. And when sometimes in my industry things go awry, you can call up and you can be all excited and you know irritable about a situation. And they're the calmest, coolest generation in the world. And they're like, okay, so how do we fix it? And that that's just their attitude. And that's why... I think they're, they may be the saving grace of, of society is because they don't get excited about minuscule issues like we used to in our day because they already know the answer. They have the information at their fingertips. You know, it's, it's just a problem to be solved to them. And they're experts at doing that from how they've been raised. So mm-hmm. hur- hooray to good parenting. Yeah. Okay. So – Go ahead well, on with your story. I just, I just wanted to intervene there because, oh, um, no problem. I, I really believe that it, it, it all starts at home, and it can make such a big difference. Because I could have started out saying, "Well, you don't have to play dolls with her." Exactly. Exactly. You know, now, or, we... or don't play. You know, like I, I can remember him even having a few dolls. Right. That, that were that were actually his older sisters that were kept here. And he played with like a, a boy Barbie doll, uh, Ken, and then, yep. you know, girl Barbie doll. And he played house with them. And I just always made him feel and and he's very sensitive. So anytime that he cried over something, it was never it was never because he got hurt because he he acted like he didn't ever get hurt like physically right. hurt physically hurt um he I, and i think that's because he was as a baby in the hospital for a year and had 
they they couldn't even find any veins left to put needles in him. That's um, I remember you telling me his story. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, like pain to him was non-existent. Um, it was it was his heart. Yes. That you know his his feelings. Um, he was just, and he still is a very heartwarming, sensitive person. But does he cry over everything? No. But is he embarrassed to cry? No, either. Good. You know, and I've always made sure that I've told him that's a good quality that that we look for that in people, not just men or women, but people. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, I, I still believe that it starts, it can start at home. And then, of course, if you start them at home, once they're out in society, they've at least got a base to go by. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, they're going to make their own decision eventually. But hopefully we start at home and, and support them either way. And okay. and that's that's so important. And, and our kids are their blanks, their blank slates. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 teach your child. They they don't. <laughs> He'll probably they say don't, too much. They yeah. <laughs> and and sometimes we teach them too much, but they're not born with a microchip in their head that's pre-programmed. Their brain is not pre-programmed. We teach our children. We teach them to love. We teach them hatred. We teach them everything. And sometimes we do it without knowing right? because it's the way we were raised. And generationally, as that moves on, if you continue that, we're going to have some, we're going to have some major problems. We're going to have some major battles and major rivers to cross in the future. But I see that from my story, from, from my standpoint. Now I, like I'd said before, was born with this condition, this persistent malaria duct syndrome, and didn't know it until I was in my late 30s. I had started the process of transitioning. I was so, married. There you go. Okay. I was married and had a child between my then wife and myself. We had her two children from a previous marriage and my two children from a previous marriage. So we had five kids in this household. Okay. Um, you know, $200,000 house on the West side of town, you know, nice up and coming neighborhood, beautiful rural schools. And this becomes an issue one morning when she discovers my alter ego and, and I'll, I'm going to leave it at that word alter ego for now. Okay. So we started the process of counseling, marriage counseling. And the very first counselor that we came to uh, in Omaha, she was, she was an amazing counselor, did two or three sessions with us. And then they kind of, you know, split you up and we were really in it to win it, save the marriage. And aren't you telling me? And I said, what? She said, there's something that I am not, something that just doesn't jive with what's going on here. And she said, tell me about, you know, Shelly finding these clothes and these items that you had stashed and, you know, your reaction to that. And I said, I told her they were mine. You know, I wasn't going to lie to her. And she said, okay. 
She said, but you didn't tell her about that before. And I said, no, I did not. I said, it was something that you know, I was trying to come to grips with. I was trying to hide it and make it a non-issue. And Julie was this counselor's name. And Julie said, how long have you been hiding this? And I said, since childhood. And she stopped and she looked at me and she said, I can't go any further with you. I need to refer you to a friend that, that specializes in this. So I said, okay. So the next two weeks, I think we waited for an appointment and we met this gal, Amy. And Amy had gotten the scoop from Julie and probably, you know, traded notes and conversations back and forth. So she brings me in first and I sit down on the couch and she said, how long have you felt like a woman? And I, it, it stunned me. I mean, it was the first words out of this woman's mouth. And, and she looks at me and she said, how long have you felt this way? And I said, since childhood. And I just, you know, just trying to be as open and honest and, you know, try to get somewhere with this counseling. She said, well, I specialize in this. And she said, what, what, where, where do you want to go with this? What are you hoping to do? She said, I've heard the story. And, you know, I reiterate the story to her. And she said, yeah, she said, that's, you know, basically what I've got. She said, where do you want to go with this? And I said, I don't know. You know, I, I want to explore this and see what this is, you know, and, you know, cure me, basically. I want to get on with my marriage and, you know, my beautiful, beautiful bride and his family. And, you know, let's put this in the past and let's make it old hat and, you know, we'll laugh about it in 10 years. So as we're going through this training, she comes to this point and she said, I want to know how long it's been, how do you feel, you know, and... I basically just laid it all in line to her and I said, I've looked at myself in the mirror for my entire life and said, why are you acting like a guy when you know you're a girl? And she looked at me and she said, that's, that's exactly where we're at here. That's what I looked, that's the phrase I needed to know. So this counseling process, believe it or not, you don't just wake up one day and say, Hey, look, I'm a trans person. And throw your hand up and then, you know, start dressing in the opposite sex. That's really not how this works. So I went through an implied consent process. And she asked me again, she said, where do you want to go with this? And I said, I want to transition someday. And I had made my mind up at that point, And I hadn't really discussed it with Shelly. And she's counseling both of us back and forth. So she finally brings Shelly in one day and with me together and, she said, this is, this is going to be a hard conversation, but transition is the ultimate goal here. And that night, Shelly and I went home and she said, if you transition, we're done. And it wasn't an ultimatum. It was Shelly's very point forward um, Midwest, Midwest woman and very open about everything, middle of the road. And basically said, I don't want to be married to a woman. I am attracted to men and got to respect that when somebody says, you know, this is, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. And I said, okay. I said, so am I. (laughs) And she said, explain this to me. I said, I started, you know, going down this path with Amy and I said, I want to start cross hormone therapy. And 
Shelly kind of, it kind of stymied her for a day or two. And she said, do this. She said, I don't, and she said, I don't know why I'm saying this, but do it. So I started into the process of transition. Okay. And, so before you go on with your transition, so I got on my site <laughs> so that I could look okay. up. The persistent, and I'm, I know I'm going to mispronounce it again, but malarian? Malarian duck syndrome. Yes. So I, I know you always, I, I will add that duck syndrome, but I, it's that malarian that I'm always concerned about not saying right. So it's right. because my last name, that's, that sounds like a German uh, name. It there. is. It okay, is. Well, my last name, um, Mulish, is German and it's spelled M U E H L I C H. So that, so, you know, I'm trying to, I want to do that Mullerian instead of Mullerian. Right. So, but anyway, um, you know how I said I use Mayo Clinic? Yes. That's that's my best. Well, Mayo Clinic didn't have anything on it. They sent me over to a genetic. Yes. Okay. Genetics partners. Yep. And so. This is interesting to me because I, I'm just going to read it to you. Okay. And I'm sure you've done all this reading, but the way. Oh, yes. I know. I know. But the way that you're explaining how you were and then what this says is really surprising to me. Okay. Um, and just so you know, any of that background we can hear. Okay. So it says it's a disorder of sexual development that affects males. So Mm -hmm. you were born a male. I was born male. Yes. Males with this disorder have normal male reproductive organs, though they also have a uterus and fallopian tubes, which are female reproductive organs. The uterus and fallopian tubes are derived from a structure called the... Mullerian duct during development of the fetus. Correct. Okay. The first noted signs and symptoms in males with persistent duct syndrome are usually undescended test or yep. soft out pouching in the lower abdomen. Mm-hmm. So the uterus and the fallopian tubes are typically discovered when surgery is performed to treat these conditions. Okay, so you know all that part, but what yep. really what really I did not know was that it's actually hereditary. It is. And we it never is. Dis- we never discussed that. We didn't. And it's a lot of people it's assumed, I let me let me say that, it's assumed go through life and never discover it because it never presents. In my case, it never presented. It, it was never. It was never an issue. Therefore, no one would have ever found it until I got into an automobile accident and was unconscious. And the doctors decided that since I was unconscious and it was a pretty substantial accident, they were going to do a scan to make sure I didn't have any internal injuries because I had got bounced around quite a bit and had actually gone under the seatbelt somehow. So hmm. they they take me to the hospital unconscious. And, and, and now how old were you at this stage? 
I was in my late 30s. Okay. I would, uh, had started transitioning, um, had gone through the whole process of, you know, the implied consent, uh, the legal, you know, the legal side of it, the implied consent with the hospital and with the counselor. Okay, so and actually you didn't know. My entire you, life. That, that, that you had an actual syndrome that, or disorder that was causing I did not. Okay. I, I I had absolutely no idea. Okay. And because one other one other thing I just wanted to put in there, and then you can continue, because um, this is surprising. Because you said you have three children that you've yes fathered, right? Yes. This and this is this is amazing, actually. So yeah. Right, because it does say that um, effects of persistent malaria duct syndrome may include the inability to father children infertility or blood in the semen exactly or cancer yep and earlier in life i had um i would say in my 20s i had found a bump in near my testes and had to have surgery um to have it removed and they had basically said there was a lot of blood there was there was yes uh-huh. and it was a it was a it was a well how the doctor described it was the largest spermatocele he'd ever seen if it was a spermatocele in the vast deference he said now he goes this is he goes this is this is you know the biggest thing i've ever seen you know this type and of course you know they wanted to go through testicular cancer and and you know all these other tests and make sure so you know, when once they found out it wasn't cancer, they took this little bump out and they were like, hey, everything's cool. I, again, didn't have any ideas. You know, I was working in Arizona at the time, living in, living in the Phoenix area. And this came up, you know, went to urology, went to the surgery, got this thing removed at Scottsdale Surgical Center. And I was off to the races again, you know, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raising my two kids uh, by myself. Had moved them to Arizona with me, so so, so did you. To get life was normal. Custody. I did. I did. I had custody of of both my my oldest two. Yes. Did they just? Did your wife's just give them to you, or was it a fight? Or oh, it was did, a fight. Did the boys was it? Yeah, they were younger, and they were under five. Um, basically. Um, it was a couple of young kids that got married, had kids and, um, got divorced. And there was, there was no contest to the divorce. And I ended up raising my two children as a single father. So I enjoyed it. But I mean, it was, how did you, so she didn't contest you having custody is that what you're no, saying? No, no, never showed up for court in Brunswick, Georgia. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, okay. you know, at the time there was a lot going on in, in her defense and she's a friend of mine and I, and I won't, I won't down her. Um, there was a lot going on in her life at the time. And it, so it was, was probably better for the boys. It was the best decision. It mm-hmm. was the situation for them. Okay. Go ahead. You know, and so many guys would, you know, I wouldn't say so many, but a lot of guys would have just walked away and said, I'm not doing this. I embraced it. And to me, it was, it was just natural. I'm going to raise them. I love them. I support them. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they have a good life. 
So I am raising my kids, and I was in the aviation industry. I had just gotten out of the military uh, after eight years in the Air Force, and uh, these two two amazing young young men. So how old were they at the time? Uh, three and four. Wow. Okay. So I end up, I end up, oh no, actually two and three. They were two and three. And I end up raising these two young gentlemen uh, working at an aviation manufacturer in Georgia. And we moved up to Savannah so I could be a little bit closer to her family and to my family. And, you know, so have a little they, bit of a support so did system. They, I was going to say, did they help out with the babysitting and all that while you worked? No, they were far enough away that, you know, I was basically um, going to daycare every day. I took him to daycare every day and went to work. And, you know, work just kind of worked around it. You know, it was one of those things where I had my kids and it was, you know, any single parent. And it was a large company. So, you know, they were kind of, you know, family inclusive and, you know, all about it. And I had a lot of good support from, you know, from my daycare people. And I, it was like any single mom, you know, you, or any single parent, you know, you, you seek out resources so you can, you know, continue life and work and raise your children. So now during this time, you were still a, a male Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yep. Still okay. living, still living fully in that male lifestyle. Okay. So, so go ahead. Another, you know, another company had come along and they were, you know, it was the, it was the early nineties or the late nineties rather. And, and the aviation business was booming. Um, they were, you know, trying to find people to come to work for them. So a company from Wichita comes out and we'd like you to go to our Tucson facility. So, Arizona was on my radar anyway. I went to the Tucson facility, moved my kids cross country, and I'm raising my kids in Arizona. Uh, six months later, uh, a private operator comes in and says, hey, look, you know, um, we know your reputation. You got a really good reputation in aviation. Would you come to work for us directly and work on our fleet? And, you know, this is in your wheelhouse. These are the aircraft that you know you've been trained on. It would be an asset to us. And we're going to offer you a wheelbarrow full of money to come work for us. And I mean, at the time, I think I was salaried at like $62,000 and I was under 25. Okay. And so I had plenty of, yeah, I had plenty of income. I, you know, I had the dream job in Arizona. Uh, I worked in Scottsdale. I lived in Scottsdale. So I hired a nanny, you know, to pick up the day-to-day stuff because, you're working for a private individual, you know, you're going to be there some long hours. And we put the hours in. Um, a few years later, I returned to South Carolina because their mother had made some headway in her life. So I went back to South Carolina where she was living and we co-parented for a period of time. And during during that period of time, there was a custody switch. Oh, oh yeah, I, you know things things worked, things didn't work. You know there was a custody switch. She had gotten remarried, and he was younger, didn't really know you know a lot about children and taking on that task. So there was another custody switch later on. So I end up 
pretty much in a situation where the company that I was working for and I were kind of button heads. And I said, you know what? I've done all I can do for you. Um, thank you for the position. And I moved to Nebraska and I became an airport manager in a small town. So, so how, what made you think of Nebraska and find something there? I had been in Nebraska as a child and had fallen in love with it and basically just searching um, for jobs. This job popped up as an airport manager and it was kind of the next career step to go to. And I thought, you know what, let's just go be self-employed and, you know, maintaining a small airport, you know, getting into, you know, my own thing. Let's just go do this and be self-employed. And I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit. So it was, it was kind of the next step. Can we stop just a second again? Sure. So, so as I said before, I do my homework and I, I pulled you up on Google. Yep. And it says that you actually started modeling at a very young age. I had, yes, I had. So where did that all fit in with and did you model as a male both both actually okay so Um, then what's a very young age um i would say i started when i was in high school okay so so my son was seven okay He, he was seven so that to me is like a young age um even though a teen but by then you uh, well, no, you hadn't turned, you hadn't done any sexual change. No, hadn't, hadn't. So, and, and yet you model both as male and female? Yes. And the fashion and industry was. Unusual for that, that, Aurora, that um, time frame. Go ahead. Well, to me, it was, it was this private life that no one knew, you know, oh. and I, you know, it, it wasn't public. You know, I, I worked for, you know, certain small designers around the area. Okay. And the fashion industry is very accepting of everything. Mm-hmm. Mostly everything, lifestyles-wise. And I think they, li- they like, and I don't want any offense taken to this, but uh, people that look different and uh, pop out. Exactly, exactly. The, the art is in the oddity, as they say in mm-hmm. fashion. Mm-hmm. So, so with that, with that out there, you know, there was a few designers in Peoria, small designers, you know, that that needed models. And and when I say modeling around there, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't every day walking a runway. It was, hey, you know, come model this and let's get some pictures. I'm doing some print advertising because that's all they had back then was print advertising. So, so I think we're you and I are about the same age, and yep. I. I modeled myself around here and it was like, okay. So it was fashion shows that were yep. put on at different areas, different um, department stores. Yep. And then I also did um, some commercial shoots. Yeah. And I also did like brochures for like St. Mary's hospital. I think it was St. Mary's in Bloomington. Yeah. Um, you know, just like brochures that they were doing. So that kind of small stuff until my big one came when I went to Hong Kong during a designer's 
only. Um, and so they just had certain models that were there three months. Right. Um, so it was a de- it was only for designers and it was a spring clothing line. Right. Spring collections. Yep. Yep. And but, I so, never yeah. got into like any of the any of the commercial stuff back then. You know, I was just working, you know, small stuff. Um, when I went to the military, it gave me you know this opportunity to model abroad. You know, I mean, I was I was in the military, so you know it was easy to do this. And to me, it was this private life. It was something I did, you know, inside. And modeling on, on both sides of the spectrum was was just normal you know, for me, and, and it was kind of normal for the fashion industry. Um, Which I, I wasn't even aware of. No. And then I, you know, I kind of just let it go. You know, I, I, I backed away from the industry. The military was my career. And there were some pretty strict rules, you know. I mean, obviously, you couldn't wear a uniform and, and model in, you know, military uniform, blah, blah, blah. Right. Which, who, who would want to? Right. But, you know, um, there was, you know, just, you know, having your face out there, you know, while you're in the military wasn't really a smart thing back then because, you know, let's face it, we were going to war and, you know, not everybody needed to know who you were. So I I picked up my military career and I, I moved on with it, you know, and I kind of just had picked up my life and moved on with that and was like, you know what, I'm I'm in the military. Uh, I'd met my, my oldest two sons' mother and... Uh, she became pregnant and we had, so we were, you know, two very young married, um, I, I would say child, child slash adults with, you know, a baby here and we get orders to Salt Lake City, Utah. So off we go to Utah and baby number two comes along and, you know, we're, you know, we're now living the American dream, um, you know, in the military Um, got this awesome job, you know, have a wife and working my butt off and she was working her butt off and, you know, we, we had moved to Utah to get some medical treatment for her because there was a specialist there that she needed to see. So the air force graciously said, okay, we'll do this for two years after that plan on going to Korea. So in that two years, some things had changed and I decided, you know what? eight years of this stuff's enough. I want to be a civilian again. So I lined up a job, went into my boss and said, Hey, look, you know, it's been really nice, but I'm not going to reenlist. This is the last and kind of shocked them a little bit because they all kind of thought I was going to be a 20 year. And I said, no, you know, I just had enough. And I said, I'm going to go work, you know, the civilian world. So, you know, we take off and lo and behold, you know, not knowing that there was divorce in the future, um, I had, you know, a great civilian job, like I said, working in Georgia for an aviation manufacturer and, you know, everything was peachy right up to the point we got divorced. Now I will tell you that she knew about the other side of me mm-hmm. and she was willing to play along because she thought it was a fetish or, you know, something just kind of a, a kink or a quirk. And I said, you know, whatever, you know, however, I knew, I knew what it was. And, you know, she would play along, you know, you know, with the kids were, you know, young enough that no, they, they had no recollection of it. 
but it was something we only engaged in between the two of us at home. Okay, and, so I'm going to stop you there because I think people are going to have some questions. Sure. Um, and you'll know where to pick back up, right? Yep. Okay. So one, out of curiosity, how many years of was there in between you taking the boys to Arizona and then going back to is it South Carolina? South Carolina. Yeah, there was four years. And then so so then they became six and eight. Yep. And then you moved again. I did move to Wayne, Nebraska and, when they were and, six and eight. And then you they went with you. Yep. And then you moved again? I moved to Omaha. And okay. um, so, so my question is, how were the boys handling all this? I think the moves, the moves, they were young enough that it wasn't that hard on them. Um, yeah, they were in school. And they got into a really good school system here um, in Nebraska that was, you know, smaller, you know, smaller classes, you know, just really good, solid schools. They had no idea of anything about me at that point. Okay. But I guess I'm just going on because we know at that point they wouldn't have known anything about that, but just, just from military families and stuff that I've talked to, um, the military brats <laughs> uh-huh. labeled them as um, had a lot of resentment about moving around a lot and you a know, lot do le- leaving their friends and starting new schools and a lot a lot of them had a disassociation and and it was so, I mean at that point in time in the military we moved every two years because. It's what the military did. They had some some plan that no one ever knew what it really was. But yeah, you moved every two years, and you know you uprooted your family and you took off. And but then we on based... top of that, they had a, a divorce, mom and dad. Exactly, exactly. And so you must divorce, have been doing amazing. Well, I I appreciate that. I I say that it was a culmination of learning experiences to to raise two children by yourself. And and don't get me wrong, it's not easy. It's it's you know I make it sound easy, but it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my entire life was to raise two children, run a business, and be able to keep track of everything and keep everything in line. Um, okay, I'm gonna stop you there again. Uh, this is just um, yes, it is hard. So I'm I'm agreeing you, with you with that. This was just interesting to me because I raised my older daughter by myself. Mm-hmm. Now that's just one. Right. But, um, still, I worked two jobs so she could have everything that she wanted. And I tried to take the place of a mom and a dad because her dad was not around at all. Yep. And, he, and he did not contribute to any kind of support. And she had 15 years of dance Acrobat, ballet, jazz, tap. Um, yep. she, she was in cheerleading and volleyball and track. And 
And I was also, I started going to school at night, even though I had two jobs to, to finish another degree. And all that was really hard. But in my daughter's senior year in high school, she um, was in an English composition class and she was given a choice of different subjects to write on, but they had to be ones that they like interviewed other people with. And then it was, it was like a comparison or persuasion. Okay. And so her subject was um, living and being raised um, in a single parent home. Right. And I was so interested. She got an A on the paper. I did not know anything that she wrote until after she brought it home and had it graded. And I read it. And one of the things that she, she said that she had, she felt like she had an advantage over kids that had a two parent home Mm -hmm. because there was only one set of rules. Exactly. And I, I never even thought about that, but she said, I didn't have that. I watched my friends go back and forth and manipulate even with their mom and dad because their mom and dad, you know, had some different views on yep. And she said, I didn't have that. You know, you had your set of rules and that's all there was. And I didn't, I wasn't even able to question it. And she didn't feel pulled. Exactly. She wasn't drug in two directions. Uh-uh. So that, that was kind of interesting to me because I, I, I was just sure it was going to be like this thing, how horrible she felt when out of place. And, and it was a really positive thing. So I think kids are extremely resilient. um, And there are some good things, like you said, that that can come out of that. I think the the good that came out of my boys being with me and watching what I did, because again, we train our kids, we teach our children. They are sponges and they are blank slates. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of monkey see, monkey do. Now, the one thing that... I think the good that came out of me raising my children by myself, they saw someone who was strong, who had a work ethic that would do anything to ensure their safety, their health, their, their home. And that would make sure that they were solid. And, and they picked up on that. And I think a lot of times it's not what we say to our kids or do around our kids. It's the our inherent actions too. our actions. Absolutely. And they, and they key in on that. Mm-hmm. Now I will tell you about my oldest two, um, 26 and 24. Okay. One is a very accomplished salesperson works for an automotive dealer here in the city mm-hmm. and has been there for six years. Okay. My middle son was the, was the youngest. My middle son is an iron worker, works for the union, mm-hmm. and is a welder. Absolutely enjoys his job, loves what he does. And makes and good money. <laughs> makes amazing money. <laughs> uh-huh. 
and gets, you know, and gets compliments from his boss. And I get compliments because I know a lot of these people in these communities and they're like, your kids are workaholics. And I said, I don't know if they're workaholics, but they got a good work ethic. And you know, I said, I don't know what a workaholic is. And everybody kind of laughs because I was, I was like that, you know, I was, and I am like that. I, I pushed I'm myself like that. <laughs> and it's, it's from being, I think, raised in the Midwest and, you know, and especially around that, that Peoria area, there's a, there's a certain work ethic there that people just don't quit. And that's what I enjoy about the Peoria area. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's, well, it's, I guess I guess I never looked at that, but um, so I'm from Nebraska, by the way. I was born in Lincoln. Okay. And I think we left when I was like six or seven. Okay. And both my parents got a job at Caterpillar in Morton. Right. And so, of course, that was a small town. Um, they put us in a Catholic school. um so we were well i found this out later on at the time i was too young to know the difference but okay so where we lived was a brand new subdivision and and so i guess it would have been more upper class at, at the time now you know now there's like seven hundred thousand dollar homes you know, right. that are all over there but it's not you know but we we were in that subdivision the newest subdivision in town and and then we went to a catholic school and i i got branded labeled not even yep. knowing not even knowing it because it's just a school you know i went to school every day had to wear a uniform in fact i like couldn't wait till i was old enough to make my own decision of not going to church every day and not wearing a uniform and (laughs) right um but when so we moved to east peoria when i was in my eighth grade summer and lived up on fond du lac drive okay okay nice area another late area of east peoria and i knew nobody absolutely nobody and i can tell you i was miserable i did not want to move I loved my friends, my group of friends that I had in Morton, which were just the ones I knew from school. Right. um, But, you know, so I like start my freshman year and I know absolutely nobody. Um, And when girls start, started coming up and introducing themselves, seeing, you know, oh, are you going to try out for this? You're going to do this, whatever. Um, And then say, where are you from? Where'd you move from? And as soon as I said Morton, oh, you're one of those snobs. Uh huh. Then when they asked where I lived, and I told them that even added more to it. And I never felt like we were above anybody else. Right. Um, Both my parents always worked. My, my mom and my dad, I never, the whole time I was growing up, never saw my mom not work or my dad. Um, there was, there was five kids. We, we did go on two vacations a year. We weren't hurting for anything, but we weren't by any means rich. Exactly. 
I, I think we're middle class. And, you know, they were building their family and Caterpillar was booming. And, you know, I mean, let's face it in that area, you either farmed or you worked for Caterpillar in those days. Right. Uh, and I didn't feel like, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I was raised with my mother always working and my mom at night and my dad were in bridge clubs and bowling leagues and they were very, very busy. So right. I, I think that's probably where I picked up the same thing. It's just well, absolutely the way we were. It's just the way we were raised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, you know, farm, farm country, America, you know, I mean, we worked, we worked, you know, when we got home from school, if it was harvest season, we were, you know, helping in the field, you know, if it were, you know, summertime, you know, we were baling straw, we were baling hay, you know, and we worked when we were kids. And, and I, I gained that work ethic from my father. My, now my dad is extremely intelligent and, you know, was a hog farmer, um, was into a lot of genetic um, work with with hogs and was a seed stock dealer for purebreds. So he would, you know, provide populous hogs for, you know, this this farm over here, that farm over there. And he had a lot of really good customers. My dad was an entrepreneur and self-employed and really understood swine and was, you know, it, it was an amazing farmer. Uh, later on in life, you know, he sold everything. They ended up moving to the Carolinas he went to work for a large corporation there and stayed in the same field, you know, basically doing the same thing he was doing before. He just didn't have the headache. You know, at this point he was collecting a paycheck and he always said the first time I ever made money farming was working for someone else. <laughs> so did your mom work? My mother was a beauty operator okay, and she, she still cuts hair. My dad's here. Um, she has, <laughs> he hasn't lost an ear yet. So, you know, mom's still good. Um, yeah, you she know, had hairdressers, her, are, that's hard working. They're on their feet is. all day long and sometimes they're long hours. She had a shop with a friend in Brimfield, Illinois for years. And then she moved the shop to the house in, you know, out in the country and still had her customers. And I can remember, you know, these ladies coming in, getting their hair done. And, you know, she had her barber chair there and, you know, everybody, everybody would come by the house and dad even built on a porch that she could have her shop in. So she, she had her shop there and, you know, it was easier for her because she had five kids and, you know, my great, great, great aunt was pitching in, helping with laundry, you know, helping us raise the kids. But I grew up in a two parent household, which to me was the only normal now raising my kids on my own was a natural thing for me because they're my children and i'm Mm going to make sure that you know they're they've got what they need um but i didn't know the divorced household i didn't know what that was i i was i was ignorant to that so here i am you know contending with you know raising my children knowing who i am inside and still hiding that still hiding that hiding it from the world Mm -hmm. and you know the reason that i got married was to to hide you know to try to well not to hide really to fix my who i was and i thought you know what if i get married that's that's a very noble thing to do get married have children you'll fix yourself 
that's not how it works okay so another question is going to pop up into people's minds because it did mine and i know that you already heard me ask this but not on the podcast um so you're all this time you're feeling like a man have man feelings uh, and I mean, female, female, female. Feelings. That was yes. my fault. Um, female yeah. feelings, but yet you're having relationships with females as a male. Um, um, sparsely, yeah. So, were you physically attracted to them? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and it was. You know, it was um, it was a it was just a normal relationship for me. You know, I you know became attracted, and they were attracted, and you know, relationship started. But I didn't have a lot of relationships. I was very selective on who was around my kids. I didn't just you know bring every chick for on the street home. You know, and you know, march her out the next door the next morning. I literally went years without dating. And when I got divorced and had custody of my kids, I was pretty much devastated. And I I put everything aside. I put me aside and I just worked. I, I plowed through it every day just to raise my kids. And that's what I focused on. There was no time for a relationship at that point. It was all about my kids. And I had family support, you know, when I needed it, you know, if something actually went really, really bad, I could, you know, count on family. And, you know, it gave me a lot of time to reflect on who I was and and who I knew I was and to build a plan in that time. And I, I had really built this plan in my head, you know, of, Hey, when the kids get old enough and, you know, they can understand, you know, you, you know, you can, you know, finish, finish the rest of your life, but I want to back up and tell you where this notion of I could transition came from. And it's kind of a unique story. Okay. Um, I was in elementary school and Mrs. Potter was our English teacher. And she, like, you know, every English teacher gives out the stories of, or the assignments of you're going to do a term paper mm-hmm. in seventh grade. That was pretty common in that area. So I'm doing this research on a subject that was given to me and it was eating disorders. It was just mm-hmm. a random subject that she pulled out of a hat. And it was going to be eating disorders. And I was like, okay, so, you know, they teach you how to do, you know, seventh grade research. You go to the local library. Sure. You, you know, you go through everything and, you know, you do a term paper. So in this term paper, I am researching the subject of eating disorders. And I'm seeing things like teenagers, and I'm seeing flight attendants, 
and something catches my eye and it's fashion models because back then flight attendants fashion models everybody was um you know grooming was immaculate but the biggest thing was everybody weighed less than 100 pounds Mm -hmm. so eating disorders were a big thing so i'm researching these eating this this whole thing about eating disorders and i get into our library had microfish with articles on it in in a little town of princeville and i'm looking at the um what do i want to call them um tabloids that they had microfished and I run across this article that said, Vogue model born a man. Oh, my goodness. And, and, I and went, this was like 19 what? Oh, this was had to be 1980. So I graduated high school in 90. So 83, 4, 5, 84, wow. 85. Okay. I'm, and I'm just guessing, you know, years wise. But mm-hmm. I'm reading this periodical article and it, it, it develop it just devours me because I know who I am sitting in this library as a, as an elementary school kid. I know that, you know, I, I feel female. I, I and define that. Um, I felt feminine. I felt drawn to those things stereotypically. And I was developing that person and I looked and I read this article and it was the story of Lauren Foster. So Lauren, as a child, had very supportive parents in South Africa. Grew up in a colonial village of Durban in South Africa. And father was an engineer, mother was a homemaker. Lauren grew up with very, very supportive parents. So at 18, Lauren went to got on a train with um, some other some other girls and went to Dr. Christian, I believe, in Switzerland and had the surgery by herself, woke up in a ward with 16 other girls that had just had the same surgery and went on to, you know, a modeling career. So I'm, I'm really engaged in this whole story in this tabloid. And, you know, at that age, you know, tabloids, you didn't know what a tabloid really was. It was, you know, it is what it is. But you don't realize that it's sensationalized. So I follow the story of Lauren Foster. And now I know, you know, who I am. I know that, you know, transition is going to be imminent one day. And I know there's somebody else out there like me. Because when you grew up in a town of Princeville, I think it was 1,300 people then. Those, those things aren't common knowledge. So I had seen that. I'd seen an, uh, an episode of the Jeffersons where George Jefferson's old Navy buddy comes back and had transitioned. And I think there was a couple of other shows. And I'm watching Donahue one night. And this is, you know, during this whole, you know, doing this term paper thing. And I see a Donahue episode with Caroline Cossie. Uh, Tula, the first um, trans Bond girl, actress, very successful, and you know later to become a friend in life. But I, I had all these inclinations of, hey, you can do this. 
early on in life. So, you know, those were all being carried, you know, deep down and, and hidden, locked away that this is possible and you can do this. You know, and this is the, you know, 80s moving into the 90s. So it wasn't really a prevalent thing. Is this the Lauren Foster that was in um, one of the real housewives? Yeah, Real Housewives of Miami. Of Miami, um, okay. Yeah, very yeah. good friend. She's very good friends with Marisol Patton and that whole crew that was there, yes. And she's friends with Andy Cohen. Okay. Yep. She um, has a very successful career. Lauren had modeled a lot. And it was what I wanted to do with my life, you know, is to be a model. So okay. that was my my original path in life was I wanted to be in the fashion industry, which I kind of let that go. You know, life got in the way and I just let it go. And it wasn't until years later that, you know, I picked that, I picked that bug back up and, and, you know, I'd already, had already transitioned. So it, it was just, you know, Hey, I want to do this. And to, to get but back she, to the Lauren, but she was an actual transgender, right? She was transgender. She yes, male to female. Yes, she was a transgender woman, which at that point that's kind of where I thought I was at. You know, okay. I had no idea of of what was of you know, waiting right. of the other waiting around the corner for me. Okay, okay. So I went to my first appointment with my with my um, surgeon in Miami. And I, I walk into the office and I hear, you know, doors slamming and, you know, and, and this really high pitched sound of stiletto heels coming down the hallway. And I'm thinking, okay, here comes the salesperson, <laughs> you know, and, and the door opens and I look up and I am face to face with Lauren Foster. Okay. And I am just, I can't say anything, you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's 10, it's 10 milliseconds into, Hey, how are you doing? My name's Lauren. You know, I work for Dr. Salgado and I want you to watch this video before we go any further. And, you know, this is kind of the screening video. We want to make sure this is for you. And it kind of goes through the procedure, you know, and kind of rehashes what you've just been through. And it's more of a, Hey, this is what's going to happen. It's forever. It's permanent are you going to, are you going to sign up here, you know, at the end of this video, but it's, you know, it's, it's more informational and it's more, you know, for your good to make sure that they're not just wasting their time. So I'm sitting there talking to Lauren and I said, this is amazing. I said, I finally got to meet you. She had no idea what I was talking about. She probably thought I was a weirdo, <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't that, you know, that I finally got to meet you. It was, you know, here's my mentor standing in front of me, you know, and I was like, you know, it's really, really amazing. And so she, she goes, well, you know, good to see you again. You know, here's, you know, here's the thing. Let's go do this. So I, I watched the video. She comes back in. She goes, are you, are you, you know, sure. This is what you want to do. And I said, absolutely. She goes, I'll get Dr. Salgado. So Dr. Salgado comes in and I'm thinking this is like a five minute appointment. This turns into two and a half hours, you know, sitting in this room, discussing what's about to go on and, you know, really being informed about, you know, my decision to move forward with this, with this surgical procedure. And, you know, by the way, um, you know, I've got a date open in 90 days. Is that going to be, you know, doable for you? 
And I looked at Lauren and Lauren kind of shook her head and said, and I'm going to walk her to the OR doors, Dr. Salgado. <laughs> and, and I was like, uh, so I'm at the same time, I'd had a really deep raspy boomy voice. And I think you met me back then before I had had voice surgery. So while I was there, I said, Hey, is there anything you can do about this horse collar voice? And Lauren said, we have a voice program here at University of Miami. If you would like to become part of that, we are looking for patient zero. I said, well, of course, sign me up for that. So I get on the train and I'm riding the train down to the voice surgeon's office. And I text her and I said, this is an amazing story, and to catch up with you in Miami is absolutely amazing. Had no idea you worked for Dr. Salgado. You know, thanks for being my mentor all these years. And you know, I get smiley faces back. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So, yeah, and like I said, Lauren's so deadly successful. I mean, you know, Real Housewives of Miami, Circuit. Um, she was um, a she manager. Gorgeous. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous drop dead gorgeous and i mean she works on her body continuously but she never went through male puberty either right she she transitioned early she had supportive parents she was you know not from a wealthy family by all means but you know she grew up like the rest of us she had what she needed Mm -hmm. um but she had a lot of support behind her and she transitioned early in life, so she didn't have to go through all the rest of it. But yeah, my mentor, my mentor at the time, you know, is is working for this guy that's about to do the surgery for me. So, you know, surgery day rolls around, and she is at the hospital, you know, dressed in Dior as always, or you know, some some couture outfit that she owns and she walks over and hands me my consent forms uh, for pay for surgery and i'm going through these papers and you got to sign every page you know and and it's all got to be legal you know and it's got to be notarized they bring a notary over and they stamp it you sign it again they they sign it and you know this this is an airtight package and laura looks at me and said are you ready to go and i said 35 years ago and she goes, well, let's do this. So, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, you know, I, I went through surgery um, with the University of Miami. Um, after that, I went up to the Mayo Clinic, and they completed the, as I call, plumbing hookup. And, you know, what do you it was just call it? the plumbing hookup. Like they were connecting the plumbing, you know? Because okay. I had I had the bottom plumbing done, you know, at the University of Miami, and then the cervical graft was done with um, the Mayo Clinic, and they have a very okay. good program Hold on. there. Here I'm going to interrupt you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is because um, when I first met you, the Discovery Channel was going to do a documentary and possibly pay for all your surgery and, and follow they you. were so yes. what happened at project never got off the ground they couldn't get it sold um 
and with a lot of these documentaries, you know, they developed the thesis for a documentary over all these years. And it was kind of the, hey, if we get this sold to a network, we're going to develop this script and we're going to go on with it. So, you know, they lined up everybody kind of see, you know, get the feel, get the lay of the land, you know, who's who and, you know, what, who's playing what roles. And they just bounced on the project. Well, and it was you, devastating. You know I bet it was. And, and I'm thinking, okay, so that was what, five, four or five years ago? Yeah. You know, if that was today, Somebody would they, pick, they would pick, somebody would pick right up on it. Oh yeah, as popular as the subject is now. Yeah. Yes, Dang. absolutely. So who had to pay for all this? Insurance. Um, we had gotten into the um, Obama years, and the ACA had been ratified. So the insurance companies were, you know, covering everything. And so plus, the, this was a medical thing. So yep, and it's that, medical. So, so it wasn't just a decision of, I want to be a woman. It was, I have these two, I have male parts and female parts and they're causing problems. Exactly. Exactly. And, so and I don't see where they would have had a choice, but to pay for one, one or the other to be done. And, and they were pushing for a hysterectomy, you know, just for the simple fact of that was the way they'd always gone. I pushed back and said, no, I want to keep these organs. I was blessed with this. This was the path I was going down anyway. And I think they were, the doctors were more astounded by my decision than anybody else's. Now I didn't know what was about to hit me after all this stuff started functioning, but all I knew was I've got ovaries and a uterus and we're keeping them. You know, they're, they're, they've got space. I'm good with it. You know, I'm not going to die from having them and it's not going to cause any ill health effects. By the way, let's hook them up and see if we can get this thing, you know, get this training gear. I can't wait to hear if you, did you actually get to go through some periods after I this have. was done? I did, have. I was have. it painful? <laughs> Do you have any Annoying. <laughs> I I have the utmost empathy for for any woman. All those years, yes. Oh my God, you know, and and you can't imagine the feeling of and I, and let me try to explain this as best I can. Um, you know, the feeling of just feeling yuck uh -huh. and feeling tired and feeling. Bitchy, bitchy, <laughs> because you're tired, because you're hormonal, and your hormones are going crazy in your body. And how and about then, this one? You know you're bitchy, but you can't do a darn thing about it. You can't do a darn thing about it. Just that, sit that's home. Awful. It's horrible. It's it's the worst feeling. And then you snap at somebody, and you don't realize you even did it until you've done it. And then you're just like, oh but man, you can't wow. control it. No, you can't. It just happens. And well, just just so you know, I came up. So, had you had boys? I mean, yes. had you had girls? Had you had girls instead of boys? So, when my daughter got old enough and she started her period, and remember, it was just she and I, right? So, um, and I didn't I didn't know this until later years. 
why it happened, but in her high school years, once she started her period, ours became in sync. Right. And cohabitation. Yeah. Yeah. And she would start like the day after I did. Well, I knew, I knew how I was and the best thing for me, because when she, before she had ever had her period and knew what it was like, she thought it was funny to aggravate me and get me pissed off. <laughs> oh, yes. To the point, and I would take, like, seriously, I would take something frozen out of the freezer and th- not throw it at her, but down at the floor by her. I, yep. got, I would get so mad because it was not funny. I did not want to be upset. I wanted to be left alone. And yep. she just laughed and pushed and laughed and pushed. And then she finally started hers. And payback. Oh, man, was she? No, I didn't because I understood what it felt like. But I said to her, okay, so here's the deal. There's just the two of us. You know, we each have our own bedroom. So when I come home from work, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I'm going to get my food, whatever I make myself. And then I'm going to go to my bedroom (laughs) and I'm going to shut the door and I'm going to turn on the TV. And I will only come out to go to the bathroom and mm-hmm. and take a shower and go back to bed. And I will not have any communication with you. And and then that's what you are to do when you start yours. And then we'll get through this just fine without killing each other. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so go ahead. Because that was the way that we did it. And I think she should be thanking me now because I didn't do to her what she did to me. Exactly. There. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't enact payback, but no, I, I, I had a friend of mine and I were talking on Facebook the other night and, you know, we were talking about, you know, man, a man cold and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And of course the subject changed to, can you imagine if a man had to have a period? <sighs> and her response was, they'd all die. <laughs> <laughs> they would. And it, it's, you know, it's the most frustrating, aggravating thing. You know, the, the sensation of, just the physical sensation of it, but the aggravation of the hindrance in your life of the things that you have to now pivot on and change because of this, this is happening and this is a normal process of your body, but you just feel like crap. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I feel tired, the, I feel grouchy. I feel Pain, just pain. You know, um, you know, if you're if you're lucky enough to avoid cramps that month, you know, I have never been able to avoid them. Um, in the beginning, of course, I didn't get extremely bad cramping, but I I always got a headache. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably my worst, and sometimes turn into migraines, which is yep. why really why I wanted to stay in the bedroom alone. Um, I wasn't tired and I wasn't able to take like anything for it except for like Tylenol like I couldn't take my yep. um so just Tylenol but you know I wasn't a big baby about it like I can remember my right. sister not going to school while she was on her period because she hurt so bad and I had endometriosis so I I had like seven days of, of hell stop of hell um, yes. And then, and then my daughter ended up having it too. Um, so mine was extremely hereditary. Yes, 
But you know what I was going to ask you is, so if you had a period, mm-hmm. w- would have you been able to carry a child too? I am. I am. I am viably able to carry a child to this day. And still um, like you haven't started going through change? No, I have not because, and, and I, and I asked that question, uh, my last, my last visit to Mayo's and basically I'm a teenager. You got a young, you got a, You got a young uterus and everything now. Yes. Now my body is producing its own estrogen and it's still at a high enough level. And my hormones are still enough level that until they naturally subside, you know, this, this could go on for years. Um, but are you I, interested? Not at this stage of my life. I'm 49 years old and I'm not going to be 70 when my you child turns 20. Yeah. Right. I when I have a teenager <laughs> and you know, I, there's, there's also that part of, you know, messing with the whole duality of man thing. Um, I, I just don't want to get into it. I don't want to be a spectacle for the media. I don't want to even get into that. You know, yeah, you could hide your life from everybody. And I would because, you know, it's a private thing. It would be, it would be you know, my husband and my child at that time. And I just don't want to get into it. It's, it's, I'm too old. I'm, I'm past that stage of my life. Um, you know, raising three children, you know, I, I enjoyed that immensely watching my children grow i i watch i see them today and these are three admire because of who they are and how they how they react you know to the world and how they interact with the world and i look at that and i kind of smile sometimes and go you know through all the struggle and i was on the struggle bus for a while as a single parent i think any single parent deserves a medal at the end of the day because absolutely their child yeah their child is fed their child is clothed bathed and in bed and i think there's a lot that that don't even get because you know they they struggle but the struggle taught me perseverance and it taught me what and who i was and i used to lay in bed at night you know, as a single parent and through the tears and through the struggle and say, you did it. You, you made it through today. Now people look at that and they go, she made it through one day. One day was, was a goal back then. I mean, if I made it through oh, the day, absolutely. One day at a time, one day at a time, you know, and you know, I have, I, I'm not too, too proud to admit to everybody, I have cried on my knees in the dark. And that was from raising my children. You know, I can remember when there were days that I didn't know whether I was going to pay the light bill. And I was working a 10 to 12 hour day. So there was four hours a day in overtime. But guess what? Most of your paycheck went to daycare. Daycare. Yep. And it's it's the same old catch twenty two that single parents go through is if you work overtime, guess what? You're paying the babysitter overtime as well. Yep. I, I was blessed with the fact that I had babysitters that were like, We get it, we do this, we did this, you know, just pay us, you know, this is what your rate's gonna be. And they would flat rate things, you know, and and I go back and 
if I could find every one of them, I would love to give them a hug and tell them how much they did by not doing anything, you know, by not charging me an extra 60 bucks a week. Because sometimes that 60 bucks was hot dogs and bologna and mayonnaise and some lettuce and bread so we could have bologna sandwiches. You know, I'm I'm obviously a, past that now, but Yep. And sometimes you <laughs> ate the box. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, it's, it's being a single parent is wow. That's probably the most <sighs> truth building part of your life you will ever go through if, if you ever have to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so, okay. So you went through all this surgery mm-hmm. um, and now I understand you, you're a big fashion model. I how, have how embraced, <laughs> I have re-embraced the fashion industry and it has, it has hugged me back. I, um, I enjoy the ability to walk the biggest shows on the planet. I do. I am uh, booked for New York again this year for New York Fashion Week, actually on the 11th. So just a few short days away, I'll be on the runway in New York. How did I do it? Um, That passion grew. And there was an audition in Omaha, Nebraska. So I signed up for the audition thinking, you know what? You're not doing anything that Saturday. Just go. Just, you know, go do it. Show them, you know, show them what this is all about. You were a pro. Go do it again. So, so was this as a transgender or just a woman? Just women. Okay. Yep. And I think on the on the entry sheet, um, Omaha Fashion Week had put in you know, several they were they were they're woke, you know, and they to a point, you know, where they put in, you know, are you male, female, trans? Um, you know, how do you identify basically? Mm-hmm. And I I put on there trans and then slash female. Okay. So now at a go see or an audition, you you walk and the designers are sitting there at the end of the runway and they choose the models they want for you know the looks they have in mind for that collection. So I walked and I hadn't even known that there was a call especially to capture trans models because really? the designer no one knew. And it wasn't advertised and it was kind of a norming thing. You know, it's like, Hey, look, we're looking for models. We're not going to specify. We want trans models. We want everybody to show up on their own. And it probably wouldn't have been legal to do that. Would it no, be? it probably wouldn't. No, it probably would not have been. Yeah. And it, and it would have been counter to, you know, popular culture today. Right. So I went, I go to this and I do the audition and get the, notice you know hey we'll let you know in 30 days and i'm thinking yeah it was a great afternoon whatever let's go i a friend of mine and i i love this man to the moon and back david nesbitt had started doing some photography with me in the weeks prior to this so i was going to push this one way or the other so we had done a photo shoot at the mall and David had picked the winners out of that, and I'd kind of approved it. And you know, I was going to go forward with a a comp card in in the industry is a headshot, 
a body shot, you know, some pictures of you in different outfits that you can hand to a designer and say, Hey, look, here's my contact info. It's a, it's a eight by 10 business card okay. with wow. you know, everything from height, weight measurements, shoe size, everything on there. Here's these gorgeous kind pictures. Kind of like a portfolio on one page. Kind of like a, yeah, like a one page portfolio. It's just a, you know, it's a lot of designers like comp cards because they can, they can see you and mm-hmm. they, they know who they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a professional marketing industry. So I, I, I do this audition and I'm thinking, yeah, it was a waste. And 30 days later, I get an email from the show and I'm out on the road and I get an email from the show. Hey, you made it. Um, you're going to be working for Melissa Atkinson from Toledo, Ohio, showing um, in an Avant Grande presentation of uh, trans clothing. And I'm thinking of, okay, of trans clothing. Okay. So I'm thinking, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, who, who is this designer? I, I don't even know who they are. What was her name? Melissa Atkinson from Toledo, Ohio. And they own trans clothing company. She's not they alive are... anymore. What's that? Is she not alive anymore? No, no, absolutely alive. She still works with them. Yep, still work with them. I just Googled her and it came up Melissa Atkinson obituary. <laughs> no, um, their mom just passed away. Um, that was what? that was earlier in the year. <laughs> I'm just saying that was ironic. I, that was ironic. Yeah. That popped up. Um, no, 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 no. Melissa, Melissa Atkinson photography. No, uh, Melissa Atkinson, Toledo, Ohio. Okay. There's a lot of Melissa Atkinsons out there. Melissa K. Atkinson. If you put in K A Y, Melissa K. Atkinson, it'll probably pop up. Or okay. Trans Clothing Company. So I get selected and I'm looking through, you know, everything that I can find on this designer. Cause when you get selected by a designer, the first thing you do as a model is you go out and you proof their other work to see, you know, what, you know, what you're going to be doing. Because they're your client and you kind of want to know something about them. You want their background. And I'm, I'm reading about Melissa, you know, Kent State, um, had been to Paris. I'd worked a semester with the uh, Codier and, you know, I was worked in Haute Couture and the Couturier are, you know, the top designers in France. They are the, you know, they, they make their own lace by hand. They hand bead. They follow very strict and stringent practice for garment design. And everything the couturier do is very private. But to learn from the couturier is a big feather in your cap to be selected to go to Paris to do this. So while Melissa was at Kent State, this was a, a summer in Paris to work with the couturier. So I'm, I'm researching all this, and I'm like, okay, so um, Carolyn Cossey, Tula, the, the first Bond girl, and I were in contact on social media. So I send these pictures to um, Caroline and said, hey, I'm going to be walking for this emerging designer. What do you think? And Caroline was like, this is amazing work. I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. And so I put in a phone call 
I don't get a response, which a lot of times designers will not talk to you as a model. And that's, you know, kind of old school. Hey, we'll talk to you when we're ready to talk to you. So I get an email back and they were like, hey, by the way, um, yeah, you're going to be modeling for me. This is when we're going to meet in Omaha. Please be there on time. A typical designer rhetoric of, you know, yes, you're modeling for me. Um, I acknowledge that and be at the Omaha Design Center for a fitting and photographs. So we all show up. Now, there's a trans community here in, in, in town, and we had all walked this show. We all know each other, but we never saw each other at the go-see. So a lot of us had just shown up blindly to do this. And, you know, the, the company that was putting on the, the go-see was, you know, not, you know, they just said, hey, we want models, everybody. And so we all show up and we all kind of know each other and we're getting to know each other. And now there's everybody here on the spectrum that are either non-binary, um, you know, gender neutral, uh, trans, um, every, everything under the spectrum. And we go to this, this fitting and we come up to the point where Melissa's, you know, doing a head count for models and says, Hey, by the way, um, I need a model that can fit this size too. Ooh. And I can't find anybody. They need to be trans. This is a trans show. Can you do this? And I said, well, let me find somebody. You know, who do you know? So I get on the phone. I call Lauren Foster in Miami and said, hey, you want to walk a uh, uh, show in Omaha, Nebraska? You want to and I said, do you want to walk a fashion show in Omaha, Nebraska? And she was like, absolutely. I want to come to Omaha and walk a fashion show. I said, all right. I said, here's the designer's work. Here's a portfolio. Uh, here's contact information. Let's do this. So she flies up to Omaha. This is the first time we've had a supermodel in Omaha. And I've, you know, I've known Lauren for quite some time. And Lauren walks fashion show with us. And this designer is cutting edge. Um, just absolutely their work is second to none. Are you talking about the, the um, I pulled up a bunch of people here. It's uh, at Trans Clothing. Yep, at Trans Clothing Company. Yep. Okay. So, you Good know, we're just. Thank you. So we, we start getting traction and the local news station, you know, kind of picks up on it. And my friend is the anchor there at the news station and they're one of the supporters for the show. So they were uh, pretty interesting. You know, Lauren's here, I'm here and we start gaining traction. So after this show, Melissa basically says backstage, I'm also, I've been invited to New York city to New York fashion week. Would you like to go with us? And Melissa rediscovered me and put me in, you know, New York Fashion Week again for the first time in Lord knows how many years. So I'm now, you know, reintroduced into the fashion industry and the traction has been amazing. Um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, they had me published with a, in a mass competition put on by FMC, which is a fashion and music conference 
a different show that we had walked in New York and they had challenged the designers to come up with a mask, you know, a fashion mask. So Melissa took 300 carats of Swarovski crystal and developed this mask. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you can see it in QP magazine. And we ended up, you know, placing in, you know, the top designers. So I think Nikki Blaine was in there from Indianapolis and there was another designer in there as well. So we're in this QP magazine. I'd been photographed several times at New York Fashion Week um, by BL Magazine out of Brooklyn. And a couple of other photographers, you know, had had picked us up on the street. And word kind of got out that, you know, I'm in the fashion industry. I'm modeling, you know, with this designer as a woman. And it just started to build from there. And it's been an amazing and humbling success story because people have embraced a trans model on the runway. Now there's a lot of trans models that are on the runway. Uh, Gina Rosero and uh, Valentina Sampaio, who just covered Sports Illustrated. Valentina works for um, The Limited or Victoria's Secret. Who does? Valentina Sampaio. She is yeah. from Brazil or South America, uh, somewhere, somewhere in South America, Brazil, I believe. And Valentina is young. And there are several, several trans models now in the industry. And we're, it's kind of the rise of the trans models right now. Okay. And the, really the industry jealous, is, by the way, <laughs> well, <laughs> don't be, it's a lot of work. Trust me. I um, like work, but I loved, loved, loved modeling. Modeling is modeling is a it's an experience, as you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's artistry. It's it's it, it it is an art. I, there's no other way to describe it. You know it's when you're on of, that, you know there's a lot of hours and there's a lot of work. Um, I also I don't know if you know this or if I even told you, but when I was um, actually doing a job in San Francisco, I was. Um, designing for the Marriott and there was a new Marriott going up in there. Okay. And I took a walk down to the wharf and I remember it's the first time I ever, Oh, what was the name of that restaurant with the, uh, with the shrimp bubblegum shrimp company was down there on the wharf. And I went in there and when I came out, I was just kind of, you know, I was by myself. Um, and I was standing on the wharf, just like watching the boats and all that kind of stuff. And this man came up to me and he said, how would you like to be in a movie? Okay. <sighs> all right. I mean, like, just like that, really, somebody's going to just come up to you. And so, of right. course, I did not buy it, believe it, nothing. And I figured he was going to try to pick up on me or something, you know, and that was his pickup line. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to make you a star. Right. And I said, uh, mm, no, I don't think so. And I think he realized right away that that's what I thought he was doing. And so he handed me his card and he said, well, you think about this. Um, I'm having oh. auditions in three days. Oh. And he said, and let me know. And it was, it was just for an extra. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, 
I, I took it, even though I was already working. <laughs> I, I took it, which meant I had to stay there three months longer. It was a very long job, but it was it was called The Bachelor, and it was Renee Zilberger's first film ever. Oh wow! And Chris, oh, what was his last name? He played um, Batman. He played Robin in Batman. Right. Chris, oh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, I worked with them, and I was one of the brides. And I'm going to tell you what. First of all, it rains all the time in San Francisco. (laughs) Yep. And this was all filmed outside. Oh, wow. And we had to run up and down hills, barefoot in wedding dresses, chasing (sighs) this guy all over the place. Now, this was in... um, November. It was cold rain. Oh, yeah. Um, And we probably put in anywhere from 14 to 16 hours a day. Yep. Which gave, and we stopped to eat when, after we did so many takes and the director was pissed off. Yeah, exactly. When when they'd (laughs) have enough of everybody and they didn't want to see anybody again. Yes. So I know how hard the industry is in acting now too and anybody that thinks they have an easy life is full of shit oh yeah well like the show coming up on the 11th okay so i'll leave monday for new york uh-huh. and okay so sunday the dog has to go get boarded okay so okay. you know and, and i'll walk through this you know a typical models uh, prep for a show so you know home take care of home first dog has to go get boarded at the kennel um, you know, I have to be packed, you know, getting ready to go travel to the show. So, you know, you're mentally preparing the whole, this whole time this weekend, you know, even during this interview, I'm, you know, mentally preparing for the show mm-hmm. and, you know, there's some butterflies. I'm not going to lie. Anytime you're going to, you know, the biggest show on the planet, there's going to be a few butterflies, sure. even for somebody who's done it. You know, they call me a professional. I say I'm a 12 year old, you know, that knows how to do what I'm doing. <laughs> and, I, you know, I get to do this amazing work, you know, with these amazing people and these artists that, you know, I get to work with. And I feel blessed because uh, I was chosen to do this, you know, right. and there's uh, so many people that, that would give anything to have this opportunity. You say New York Fashion Week, and this is the pinnacle of their, of their you know, soon to be career and you know, or their desired career. And all of a sudden you're doing this and, you know, you're a superhero, but okay. So Monday, you know, I, I travel, you know, Tuesday um, we take off from Toledo with the designer and we go to New York we have a private residence in New York that we have reserved and we go to the residence and, you know, Wednesday the models show up and we're a composite crew. So we're from all over the country, um, Northern Illinois, Omaha, Nebraska, um, New York city, um, Brooklyn. Let's see, we've got models coming, you know, just, we, we would have a model coming from West Palm, but that didn't, that didn't pan out. So um, we have models from Arizona and Melissa basically, you know, has put me in a position of the model coordinator. So I go out and find these models and tell them, hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm here to give you your life dream as a model. 
come to New York Fashion Week with us. And most of these models have experience, you know, and, and they've been, you know, in local shows before. So, you know, I'm coordinating the show for the designer and coordinating the models. Um, you know, I went out and, you know, and found us a place to, to live, you know, so we could all, you know, be there for the show and be together. And then Wednesday starts fittings. So we'll start going through final fitting, basically a rack check, you know, on our own. And when you get to that New York Fashion Week stage of, you know, you're, you're showing at New York Fashion Week, there's no rack check like the smaller shows where they want to make sure, you know, you don't have something crazy and wild that doesn't fit their thing. You're just expected to show up you know, right. and, and, and do it right. So we create our own rack check. You know, we make sure that Melissa, you know, fits all the models and that everybody's look is the way they want it. Um, Sarah Jane will be traveling with us from Illinois and Sarah is our stylist and makeup artist for the show. Sarah will do all the makeup um, and we're going to do a photo shoot. Probably... That'll probably be Wednesday, and that photo shoot is every model in look. So that's just for the company. Now, you know, we went to New York three weeks ago to do promo, and part of that promo was a street shoot because the designer wanted to shoot on the street, so three of us were shot on the street. Those are on Instagram at transclothingcompany.com mm-hmm. or at transclothingcompany, and Myself, Lex, who is a trans man, uh, female to male, and Amara, uh, who is originally from Omaha, uh, now lives in Brooklyn, and is proceeding along in her modeling career, just shot for Vogue. Were they Um, on that same page? They were, if you go to Instagram, Amara will be the one with the red top on. Um with uh with the um denim the denim outfit on instagram but on the on the trans clothing site trans clothing page yep for well if you go to instagram and pull up trans clothing on instagram melissa has released some of the the sneak peek stuff so you know we we went to new york already once as you know a partial crew to do promo for the company you know now we're back here you know three weeks later we're traveling back to new york and then you know we'll all meet we'll do a photo shoot get everybody all dolled up with makeup and see how everything's going to come together uh you know thursday is going to be um practice day so i'll lead the models and go through a, a mock show basically um, either at the venue before or after hours, we'll go down there maybe one or two o'clock in the morning and we'll go in and we'll practice on the runway for an hour and make sure that the models have it down. And, okay. and people don't see that, you know, they don't no. see the fact that, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, you have the model crew on the runway and everybody's tired, everybody's grouchy and you're there to work. So Friday is our off day, which we're going to go have fun in new york and everybody's going to go get to bounce around new york and um everybody thinks it's a lot of party life we don't get to party the designers don't let you party before the show because the last thing they need is eight to ten drunk models 
or drugged out looking, you know, hungover, hungover models, you know, partied out, you know, before the show. So the rules are, you know, no, no partying before the show. And okay. So I'm on this page and what did you say she had on or is it he or she? She. And she'll have on like a maroon beaded top with a um, denim jumper. Oh, uh, is she a black girl? Black girl. Yep. Very beautiful. 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 Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I see her. She's beautiful. Yep. And that's a hand beaded. Um, that, that top doesn't exist. Melissa made that material by hand. That is all handmade, except for the denim. The denim so is just fashion that's fabric. That's really cute. Um, that's that's the other thing is, didn't you mention that you also like to design clothes? I do. I design bags. Um, I do leather leather bags and purses. So I am. Uh, I'm coming you out. Time to do that. I do it on the road. I design on the road. Um, I do my sketches. And when I come home for my breaks, I have my studio set up at my house and I go into the studio and instead of going out partying and running around, I design and I have both my sewing machines. I have a leather machine and then I have my, um, my fabric machine set up and I design it, I cut it, I sew it, and, you know, after it's patterned, and I build the pattern for it, I design it, put all the notions to it, and it's almost done. I've got eight bags that are going to New York Fashion Week, and I've been invited to, to show at New York Fashion Week this year. So, Well, you're going to have to send me one if I don't get to see you so I can see what you're designing or take a picture and send me I will. I will. And I, and I have all different types of bags going this year. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's designer grade. It's, it's the good stuff. We're not, we're not playing, you know, the, the cheap stuff. This is, this is going to be really, really, really super good stuff. And so my first year to show at New York Fashion Week, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm co-designing with Melissa. Melissa is the master designer and teaching me, you know, the proper ways of construction and things like that that go into the design process. You know, fabric selection, material selection, construction, illustration, you know, it's, it's all part of the design. And the there's so much work behind the scenes that people don't even realize exists in the fashion industry. It's, it's amazing, you know, and, and I have a new respect for designers now, you know, how much time you put into each piece. Um, in that QP shoot, I'm wearing a dress with nearly 5,000 feet of tulle in it. And I, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of construction in that dress. Um, it's, it's an amazing dress. So, you know, you get this, you get this new, this new respect for designers when you start designing, you know, and, and this has always been a part of my life, you know, that, that I haven't ever developed. And it's, again, it's the next step, you know, my 49 years old, at some point in time, the bookings are going to end. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, most models make it to about 24 and that's the end of their career. I've modeled a lot and I'm blessed to, you know, continue to be invited back to these shows by designers. Um, I'm going to walk Chicago October 14th for Tony Long at Fashion Bar Chicago. And then I do believe we have a charity event um, in Toledo, Ohio, where Melissa is from, for the community. So, you know, it's it's not all about going out there and, you know, getting your name splashed in the paper. You know, you give back, too. You do these charity events. Oh, and this, absolutely. I, you know, and, and it takes time, and it takes a lot of time because – you know, going to New York is just the travel to New York is is a thing. You know, you're you're traveling to the largest city on the continent. It's a thing. So, so are you working for somebody or as your own? I'm on my own. You're on, your on own. my own. So you so you find your own gigs? I do. I'm an independent. Um I've you know, I've I have done several articles, you know, as an independent model. Um, I just covered New York Weekly uh, back in October of last year. So, you know, that was a big, that was a big, you know, nod to the fashion industry that she's back and, you know, she means business. And, you know, I've been published by QP Magazine. Um, uh, I've been published, you know, on, in Fashion Bar's um, articles in their publication and you know i think out of the six publications last year i i really 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 learned that you know the the industry is still has a memory and still knows who i am and accepts me back because the bookings and the magazines keep coming you know to be blessed enough to be on your podcast you know to be asked to do this you know this is this is amazing you know and it's I think part of it, you know, is, you know, where I'm at in my career and, you know, the other part of it is me, you know, doing what I do uh, in, in, you know, my life and, you know, to be able to be at this level and to be invited to do these things is, it's humbling. I mean, there's no other words for it. You, you can't be proud, you know, and, and show all this pride you have to be humble when you get to this stage and you have to accept the fact that you do what you do well and, and, and do accept that. I mean, look at you, you were in a movie, you know, and, and spent three months working on a project. <laughs> I, I spend three months working on, on my designs, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's the same artistry, you know, mm -hmm. it's a craft. It is mm -hmm. definitely a craft. Um, so, so thank you for saying that, that you're humble, but I feel that myself. And like I said before, I, first of all, I was drawn to you as a person when I first met you. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I, I remember thinking, I wish she lived closer. Right. You know, and you were on the road then a lot. I was, I was, yeah. And and I'm like, I want to follow her journey so bad. I want to be there to listen to it all, to, you know, and it's not that it was all excitement because you didn't have the best state of mind for a while. 
Oh, um, no. You went through a lot of hardships. And yep. I just kept having this pull that, gosh, I wish she would call me. You know, I don't, I don't want to bother her or anything, but, um, and you kept popping into my head like all the time. <laughs> and, I... and that's actually why I reached out to you because I knew none of this. And it's, it's, you know, when, when, when you live it in singular form, as I, as I like to call it, you don't see it. I mean, every once in a while I see, you know, like people, people say, you know, you work really hard. It's like, to me, it's just another day. You know, I, today, all right, take today. Tonight I'm doing a podcast. This morning at, I woke up in Miami, Florida and went out and had my coffee on the patio at my Airbnb and went over, got a few things from one of the fabrics that I needed for this project and got on an airplane and came to Omaha. To most people, that would be the end of their day would be getting to Omaha, crashed in their bed, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be up till three or four in the morning finishing up my projects and, you know, and, and mentally putting it together for next week because, you know, a week from Saturday, um, it's lights, camera, and action. And, you know, 330 million people are going to have their eyes on you on television. And, you don't think about it. I mean, like when you're shooting this movie, you're thinking about what you're doing in the moment and you don't think about it when you're on the runway and you, you step onto that runway, you find the center line and somehow it's just, it's, it's part of your nature and you've done it so many times you find that center line and your head comes up, your shoulders come back, you get into posture and you turn to the press wall and you make that first step and the spot hits you, the flying camera is above you and you're laser focused on this press wall, walking these, you know, multi-thousand dollar pieces of clothing. And your job is to make this move. You're a walking clothes hanger, but there's so much that went in to get you to that runway and the work that goes into it and the practice you, know, you don't just <laughs> thing. you don't just walk New York Fashion Week without practicing. And, and people laugh when I say this. I said, no, I practice at home. And I do. I'll, I'll put my shoes on and I'll walk up and down my hallway looking in a mirror going, oh, okay, don't oh do that. Oh my gosh, I practiced over and over again in front of a mirror. That's the way I was taught to do it. Yep. You have to. You have to see the mistakes. Yep. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, so since you're doing all this well okay there must have been a time in between because we went from the boys being six to eight to 26 and 28 yeah so were you away from them a lot during like their high school and college age years i had taken a job when they were in high school i had taken a job working in an engineering for an engineering company as a test technician for, well, actually an agriculture company that builds um, harvesters. Mm-hmm. So I had spent um, two years on contract with that company, basically traveling all over, you know, following equipment around, um, writing down data, 
and sending sending you know computer data back to the head company in Germany. So there was a couple of years of that. Um, I was self-employed. I had my own shop when I my own mechanic shop when I came out, and while the kids were growing up, and I had that for seven years, and basically we did um, heavy repairs on. Um, commercial lawn equipment, um, trucks, trailers, just a general repair company for, for the lawn and landscape industry. It's where we focused at and, you know, also on, um, over the road equipment. So we had the shop that could do that. And I had the mechanics that could do that. And lo and behold, when transition came along, that all evaporated as well. So that was, you know, part of the, that was part of the, of the change in the process was the, those years that I were self-employed, you know, and, and working on my own. Okay. So, so, so you were home. I was home. Yes. Okay. I was home with my kids. Okay. Yep. And, so, I, and I had that ability, you know, before I, I had never driven. This is funny. This is funny. I had never driven a semi in my life. There's no immediate family. My cousin had driven, you know, around there and around Illinois, you know, farm stuff and was the closest thing to a truck driver. I self-taught my, myself how to, mm-hmm. how to do this. And I became a company driver, you know, for a couple of companies. That's when I moved to Morton and, or to Peoria. And I was working for a company there and I, I got fed working for somebody else because the entrepreneur in me just doesn't let me, you know, just doesn't leave me alone. So I started my own deal, bought my own equipment and, you know, went out, struck out on my own. And, you know, lo and behold, my little transportation company, it was born and it's up and running and it's operating and it, it lives and breathes on its own. That's, that's the cool part about it is, you know, it can maintain itself. So I, I have time to do this other stuff. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you through all of this, which there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, there is a lot. Um, and I know you had ups and you had downs. Um, mm-hmm. Some mostly family support but others not so supportive um i want to touch on that for a minute okay 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 so my family support my three sisters um what i initially told them i was coming out their reaction was bad okay and my oldest sister was the closest one to me um growing up and we still speak my parents reaction was horrible um, to say, to say the least. And there was, there was some things said, you know, because I came out as a trans woman, you know, I, I came out to this ultra conservative family as a trans woman. I'm going to transition. This is me, blah, 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 blah. You know, end of the day, when we found out, as I like to say, the rest of the story of, you know, being born with persistent malaria induct syndrome, and going through all these surgeries, 
the damage had already been done. You know, I had, I had caused probably a lot of damage the way I came out and the way I presented it to them. They weren't ready for that. And, and it, it upset them massively. And actually I had inadvertently my mother's birthday on Facebook. Oh, so Your timing yeah, sucked. my timing <laughs> sucked bad, but it, you know, I don't think there's any good time or good way for anybody to quote unquote. Yeah. You know, happy birthday, mom, by the way, you know, this is, this is what's going on. And a lot of people walked away, you know, at that point. And I will tell you this, anybody that comes out, I don't care if you're bi or gay or lesbian or, or trans or whatever, a lot of people when they come out lose so many people in their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, social media has made that markable. You can see you can see when people drop off your friends list and you see who drops off and who doesn't eventually. So I liken that to, you know what, they weren't really friends anyway. And they didn't stick by you. So, yeah, those are people we don't need. Those are the people you don't need in your lives. Exactly. And that's, and it's so hard because it's emotional. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, the emotion, the one thing about, you know, your, everything about yourself to go from a man to a woman or a woman to a man. Okay. You are changing everything about yourself. If you come out of the closet and say, and I'm not saying it's easy, you're gay or a lesbian. That's one thing. And that's kind of acceptable, kind of, depending on your situation. But when you come out, and I'm not saying it's, it's harder to come out as trans and it's not hard to come out as, you know, being, you know, gay or, or lesbian or bi or however you, you know, however you identify it, you, you are about to change everything about yourself. And you're going to change everything about yourself. So mechanically and physically, it's rough. Emotionally, it's the same. I mean, you know, you the people that you think are going to stay walk, the people that you think are going to walk stay in a lot of cases. And, you know, then you got your friends that you don't talk to for six months or a year at a time. And you tell them, so tomorrow's Wednesday. What are we doing Thursday? And those are the ones right there. And I have a couple of those in my life that respected me enough in my decision because they know me and know that I don't make rash decisions stuck around and, and they're still with me today. You know, they're still part of my life today. And, you know, we enjoy, you know, we enjoy each other's company. We, we still hang out. We can still go do stuff together. So. So what I'm, hearing today and what I heard two years ago was like two totally different people. I was, Um, I was hurting pretty bad. Yeah. And so what I, what the, I know because that's what I do my podcast on is what, what do you feel like has been your biggest struggle through all this and whatever that struggle is, can you tell me, how you fixed it or dealt with it? My biggest struggle through the entire process was how was I going to pay for it? Okay. So I, 
explored options. I, I company shopped and I would actually go to their HR department and ask them for a copy of their insurance um, declarations. And I would interview with the company and be like, yeah, you know, looking at the company, you know, and then you go through the whole, you know, back and forth with the HR department, negotiating a job. And in that negotiation, I would say, hey, yeah, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is, you know, do you provide company insurance and here's your carrier? And by the way, can I see a copy of the exclusions of the policy and the inclusions of the policy? And I made it, you know, really a professional run like that. And most of them would give it up. You know, some of us would be like, hey, we don't have insurance. So I literally chose jobs because of the insurance. So I had a way to pay for this because when you saw me, it was in a time where if I didn't follow through a transition, that was going to be the end of me because I couldn't go on living the way I was living. There, there was no way that I could face another day. I, I had worn out on trying to hide. I had worn out on you know, trying to transition. And there was a lot of roadblocks then. Mm-hmm. And those roadblocks were mentally taxing to, how am I going to get this done? I know I can get it done, but how do I pay these people to do this? So you know, I'd explored all the options and you know, the, the option, insurance. Insurance now covers this. Let's go do it. And it should cover it. You know, it's, it's a medical condition. Um, I, I think was, that's kind of where you've, and I don't mean to make it um, sound in a negative way, but kind of you had that to your advantage. I did. I did have it to my advantage. Mm-hmm. I did. And I, you know, I found a company that had the right insurance and I, you know, day one when I was so, able so to my get insurance. understanding you correctly, like when you looked for your jobs, you were you you just came out and said, "What kind of insurance do you have? Let me see your policy." And decided <laughs> that's too funny. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's very smart. But well, to, I mean, to, I I wouldn't have even thought of of that. And I, I made that. it. I, I okay. So a transsexual woman. And I've said this, and, and any transsexual woman will say this, or transsexual man even will say this. When you know this is your destiny, when you knew from a very young age this is what you're going to do, you will do everything in your legal powers to get to that, that operating table. Now, there's a difference between trans women and transvestites, and the world gets really confused with that. And, you know, a transvestite wears the clothes of the opposite gender for whatever reason. Do they, you know, do they have a response from that? You know, does that make them feel good? You know, is it, you know, what, you know, what is it? You know, why is it they do that? That's, that's their thing. Mm-hmm. A transsexual woman doesn't wake up one morning and throw on a dress and go, I'm just going to go be trans and call myself Debbie and run down the street and tell the world. A transsexual woman is very private. It's very focused on the goal. And that goal is to make the body match what the brain says it is. And, you know, short of breaking the law, you know, would do anything 
to, you know, find a way to pay for that. Um, and, and my way was, you know, find a company because, you know, I love to work that had, you know, insurance. And, you know, if I love to work, they, they love to employ me because I make them money, then they should have the right coverages. And I found a company in Iowa that had the right coverages. And, um, you know, paid my deductible and had my appointments and, you know, the did insurance they, covered. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but did, did that company have any problems with you taking off work to have this stuff done? No, no, they, no. they were, they were in the know, you know, they were, they were supportive and said, you know, how much time do you need? Because, you know, you've got, you know, except you have, you know, family, family leave act, you have, you know, a lot of mechanisms that you can employ to preserve your job mm-hmm. for, for medical reasons. So they were, they were good with that. It was a small mom and pop company and they were good with that, you know, and like I said, they were supportive. So it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a, Hey, when it slows down and, and give them that mutual respect of, Hey, when things slow down and we're not so busy, this is when I would like to do this. What do you guys think? You know, can I get this time off and, and be respectful to them because they're running a business mm-hmm. paying you to do work. So, you know, be respectful to that and say, hey, look, you know, this is when I want to get this done. This is what's available, you know, when we slow down and we're not so busy and you don't need me so bad. Can I go do this? And I don't know of any companies out there that would say, no, you've got to be here at work. You can't go do what you need to get done. Um, you know, but if you're respectful, then you can, you know, you can ask for what you want. So, you, like I said, you still sound really good and all together. Um, did you have any type of bullying or what, were you too old for that? Bull- um, a lot of that came from my family, actually. Um, I was young into the process and was in Fargo, North Dakota. I was trucking and I was a solo coming back from Canada and stopped in Fargo, North Dakota for my rest. And went in and met a friend, you know, and you know, just had a normal night, you know, coming home. My next stop was Omaha, Nebraska. So I got up the next morning, was walking around my truck and somebody figured it out and laid me out. Um, on, you know, it was like 20 below zero in the parking lot. And another driver came by and picked me up and said, ma'am, are you okay? I said, I don't know what happened. And, you know, basically got left for dead. So yeah, there was some of that, you know, that went on, um, you know, in public, you know, you see it, you know, there's certain, there's certain groups that, you know, they, you know, you hear a snicker, you hear a laugh or you hear this or hear that. But, I, I know that I am so much more than that. You know, I'm not going to engage that because I'm not going to go to that level. I, you know, I, I play up here, you know, above board. You know, if you want to, if you want to come say something to me, by all means, please do. You know. So did you go through any counseling to help you get to that? Two years. I mean, you're pretty much prepared you know, in this process, when you, when you start this process, there's a two year window that you start, you start this process from implied consent 
to um, cross-hormone therapy, which is a recommendation letter, mm -hmm. uh, to living a full year, you know, in the role as a woman okay. to acclimate. Then you proceed with psychiatry because there's no surgeon on this planet that will touch you for this surgery, this specific surgery, without you being checked out by a psychiatrist. So oh, that's oh, before you go any further than that. Um, so I think we need to tell somebody who your surgeon was in case somebody would like to find a surgeon. Yes, I was the fortunate one to find Dr. Christopher J. Salgado in Coral Gables, Florida. Uh, Dr. Salgado is extremely practiced in, in plastic surgery and probably one of the top three in the United States, if not the top first. Um, Dr. Salgado studied in Thailand um, for these uh, gender confirmation surgeries or sex change surgeries with Dr. Chetowit there. And Dr. Chetowit's kind of considered the Zen master when it comes to these surgeries. Dr. Salgado studied under Dr. Chetowit, um, graduate from Georgetown. Uh, the guy's the guy's amazing. Beyond that, he is your friend through this whole thing. Um, bedside cool. manner is amazing. I I just had an appointment with him. My um, trip to Miami as a, as my you know my five year checkup, and. You know, I mean, the guy walks in the room and the first thing he does is gives you a hug and says, it's so good to see you. Oh, that's okay. That is an amazing, an amazing, amazing physician that does that because they're invested in you. Mm -hmm. They want to see you succeed and they, and they do everything to set up your success. And, you know, the, the sur there's a lot of surgeons out there that do the surgery. It's like, oh, yeah, show up on this date. You know, it's $24,000 in cash, and, you know, you'll recover in a hotel. There are surgeons out there like that. Mm -hmm. I would suggest not going to those because surgery, you want to be in a hospital setting because they have everything they need in that setting. Not saying these other surgeons don't. But it just makes sense when you're having something done this big to be in a medical facility where they have every resource known to man right there at their fingertips. And so, so what exactly did you have done? I had my vaginoplasty done uh, with Dr. Salgado. And I had my vocal cords uh, rearranged and retuned by... Um, the University of Miami as well. And they have a voice program there. Hello.
Okay, we paused for a brief um, advertisement. And so, can, do you remember where you were? I do. So okay. I had my voice um, surgery done by Dr. David Rossow um, at the same time that Dr. Salgado did my vaginoplasty. So basically, Dave, Dr. Rossow was working at, at my head. Uh, Dr. Salgado was working down below, and we did this whole surgery in about seven hours um, oh. total time in the OR. So I was down for quite a while. I uh, went in at uh, six in the morning local time and was awake the whole time, walking in or getting into the OR. And then, of course, you know, they, they give you the, the good old uh, go to sleep button. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, once they hit the tequila button, you're pretty much done. <laughs> uh, you, you wake up and, you know, everything's done. Um, you, you know, you, you can't speak for seven days after voice surgery. So you're pretty much oh, wow. writing everything down. And, you is know, there, they did. Is there something in there? Or do you they just, have a suture? They have a okay. suture that's holding your vocal cords together because they stripped Ouch. that lining off. You know, right where it's it hits the front of your voice box, they strip that lining back about ten millimeters on each side. Then they pull the cords together and they put a suture through that, and it effectively shortens the length of the opening of your vocal cords. Oh, that just gave me the chills. <laughs> you're completely, you know, you're completely out of it. Then he did it with um, the Da Vinci technique with the robot. So you know, they put in some gel to kind of stabilize things. And they put this suture in that, that goes away. You don't have to have it taken out. But when you wake up, you know, it's seven days not moving your vocal cords, which kind of tough. You know, you got to breathe. But, you know, the nurses are coming in asking you questions. And you're like, mom's a word. I can't say anything. But I did wake up that night and tried my new voice out, of course. Obviously, when I was fully awake enough, you know, I tried my new voice out. And I was like, oh, Wow. But voice, you know, your vocal cords are only part of it. There's a lot more of it that comes from the way people speak, the mechanics of speech. Mm -hmm. And that's tempo and timing and, you know, the pentameter and, and the dynamic and the static and, you know, pronunciation, enunciation, and, you know, just a whole, a whole myriad of things that come in that are just as important as, you know, having your cord shortened. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, oh, well, you have your vocal cord shortened automatically, you're going to talk like a woman. That's not true. There's a lot of therapy afterwards to get you to that point. And you deal with, you know, vocals with, with vocal coaches to get you to that point. Now, am I perfect? I'm pretty raspy because I've, you know, been up all day and I've, you know, been flying Pretty dry air. I'm drinking water, you know, all the time. Just I'm raspy, and that's just my voice. And that's yeah, I'm raspy, and that's just my voice. You know, it's kind of gravelly, and you know, this is who it is. If you heard me before when I was, you know, trying to fake it, and now it's a completely different voice because I've been coached, I've been, you know, operated on. I've had a lot of things done to get me to this point. And it's been a lot of work. So Yeah, sounds like it. So you also had um, facial surgery? I did. I did. So I had 
So basically they um, went in and reshaped my brow bone and did my um, eyes, my eye sockets, and then kind of smoothed the cheeks down a little bit and kind of took that whole boxy look out of my face. Okay. And just give you more, more softer feminine features because that didn't develop in my life. I, okay. you know, I, I just didn't get that. I was, you know, pretty, pretty squared off, pretty square jawed and had a lot of masculine features to my face. So by, you know, getting the surgery done, I feel a lot more confident. I think, I think that's a lot of confidence building when you do that. That's good. Okay, so this this one's going to be deep. So then you said you had vaginal plastic. Yes, I had vaginal plastic. So, so, so does that they they remove the penis and the testicles? They do, and then, and then they make a vagina. They they do. So the the process is. There, there's two processes that are commonly used. And the first one is the, the removal, the, the dissection of the penis. And then they keep, when they do that, they keep um, the nerves, basically. And when they do this, it is a process of... Very, 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 very um, delicate surgery. Now, Dr. Salgado and a few of the other uh, surgeons use a technique where they preserve that nerve and they keep you fully functional. So during this dissection process, the, the glands head or the, the head of the penis is dissected and they keep a piece of it about the size of a pencil eraser and they do that so they can form the clitoris okay so during this dissection process it's it's extremely extremely delicate working with this nerve and they strip it all the way back to the bone and they they keep it moist and they basically invert the penis, the penile skin, and they use that to form the vaginal canal. Wow. So once they do that, the cavernosa inside where the, where the blood engorgement happens is completely um, taken out. So then they're left with this um, tube of skin. So they invert that and they keep that blood supply and they basically go in and they cut the muscles down there and they anatomically make you female. Uh, those muscles are then, they're cut, they're sutured back and they mimic exactly the anatomy of a cisgender female. So once this process is done and they create the canal, they trim the pelvis so it has that nice little opening to it and they create the, the void in which to insert this tube of skin 
and they make sure that they have blood supply to it and they suture all the all the um, blood vessels and you know they carterize and make sure that everything's still viable then this tube of skin is inserted and they put in hanger stitches up to these muscles they create a neocervix at the top so you know there's that hole so you know bodily pressure can pass and then they take that little piece of the gland's head and they very, very carefully position it and suture it in place. So you have full sensation. Wow. And they preserve all these nerves. It's, it's a very, very, very delicate surgery. But so, all the nerves are, are preserved. Well, that's good. So was that, was that painful healing? It, it really wasn't painful. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it was, you know, more the skin closure and the sutures, I think, were more painful. Um, you know, was the muscles it, healing. What about, wasn't it like hard to, I, I, I'm thinking about how the body works. So then when you urinate, mm-hmm. it'd be totally different than it is it is was was that an adjustment that was a total adjustment and (laughs) and so you know before you still had the option of of standing when you're going through this process you know you're sitting and peeing because you're using the ladies room Mm -hmm. and obviously you know you want your feet going the right direction so Mm -hmm. um you know (laughs) courtesy (laughs) courtesy you know and and no trans woman stands to pee Uh, that's just kind of a code so you well that would be hard to do anyway that would be hard to do so squat yes but i've i've learned i have learned to hover because i've learned that the ladies room is can be a very nasty place um (laughs) you know certain certain places you just don't sit and other places you make your own toilet seat or you know you haven't learned you haven't learned the toilet paper to put on the toilet seat oh Every time, because, you know, I, I have become a connoisseur of toilet seats. I say, you know, I walk in and I make sure that there's no spots on it. And if there is, then we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're definitely walking out. Um, right. But, but yeah, make my own, make my own uh, toilet seat covers out of toilet paper. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. sit on public toilet seats. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm phobic that way. I, am um, <laughs> I can't, I just can't bring myself to do it because Let's face it, ladies, we've all sat down on a wet toilet seat before, and it's the grossest feeling in the world. It's gross, yes. So you know, the, the hardest thing for me is going to an out, outhouse. Oh, yes. Oh, God, oh, yes. Gosh. There's nothing to hold on to to brace yourself to kind of no. to balance yourself. So No, it's gross and stinky and dirty, and but yeah, sometimes you got to use it. Sometimes I'd almost rather just go behind it and use it. <laughs> exactly. Just go in the weeds. <laughs> I grew, yep. up, I grew up in Peoria County, Illinois, everyone. I know how to pee in the weeds. I will guarantee you I do. And I've mastered the ability to pee in the weeds and not in my shoes at the same time. So <laughs> okay. those are things you learn. Now, that, first time, that first time in a hospital, I mean, you wake up with a, with a catheter in, with a oh, Foley catheter. Ouch. So, yeah, no, they're not no. fun. no. So, you know, they're, they're trying to keep all that moisture away and, you know, keep your bladder from working. So probably um, also by healing, no infections. Exactly. So about day six, they come in and they unhook the catheter and they plug it. 
And you're like, what are they doing? And they're doing bladder training. So they, they let you get that sensation of your bladder not filling. Jerry, uh, remember, all these muscles have been rearranged. And you're used right. to using different muscular, different muscular techniques to urinate. And I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and basically, you know, a guy can stand there and just pee and, and use tummy muscles. Well, to learn how to pee as a female is a thing. And the first time you do it, you're, you're really swollen after sure. It's like any surgery you have swelling. I mean, it's, it just is what it is. These people that say that, you know, this is, you know, genitalia mutilation. They got the pictures from like day one or two after surgery, wait about 30 days and take a picture of it because you can't tell the difference. You know, they, they, they take you in and they uncork this thing. And they deflate the balloon, they pull the catheter out, and they're like, okay, it's your I, turn. I, I have, like, seriously chills going at me. That just, I hate catheters. And that oh, whole, yeah. That whole thing. Ugh. So you're sitting there with, you know, someone standing outside your door because you're in a hospital and they don't want you to pass out. And mm-hmm. you are trying to figure out which muscles to use to make this work and you really got to go because you know they've been feeding your water all morning and you've been sitting there blindly drinking this water going i really need a lot of water today and you really got to go so you know you're you're squeezing with this muscle or that muscle and then you finally realize that you just have to relax and then squeeze with your bottom muscles and all of a sudden it works, but you don't realize what the angles are because you've never been at this angle before. <laughs> so you're sitting back with your legs open on the toilet seat instead of leaning forward like you should to position yourself to pee. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you do is pee sprinkler <laughs> like a newborn. And you're, you know, you're, you're making a mess and the nurse is laughing because she's seen this, you know, a gazillion times. And she's like, um, honey, rule one of being a woman, lean forward when you pee. And, you know, she just kind of nonchalantly says that through the door. And <laughs> not really, and but it is. it's not, but it is because it's, it's those things that you're learning, you know, and you're learning these things as and, you go. And, and, and obviously things that we never even thought of before. No. No, and, and, and why mean, like, would you? You, know? I, you wouldn't, but when I'm sitting here listening to him, I'm like, so I just figured guys use the same muscles as women oh, no. do. I, I mean, no, I mean no. but that's what I would think. You I would, would think, have yeah. no reason to think any different. No, and, and but once you actually master that, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, I don't even think about it now. It's just, I go, I go. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, and that's kind of day one, you know, and you get back in bed and, you know, day like seven or eight, they get you out of bed and go for a walk. And like, I got to ride in a wheelchair on day four down to Starbucks. Doc cleared me to take a, take a hike down to Starbucks as long as I was in a wheelchair. So, you know, I got to go explore the hospital in a wheelchair and my nurses took me down and, you know, I got Starbucks and it was kind of an amazing thing, you know, cause like, you know, the people that are there, you know, kind of get it, you know, and they, you know, everybody's so helpful. And, and I will say that University of Miami Hospital, uh, Jackson Health Center is probably, 
as far as I can tell, and I'm probably a little jaded, the best, uh, the best place to have this done, you know, other than with, you know, Dr. Salgado, because he uses Coral Gables and Hialeah, but for, the, for his surgical hospitals, mm-hmm. but he was there teaching at University of Miami and is considered, you know, a renowned surgeon in this field and absolutely just amazing. And I, I love him to death because he's invested in the patient. He's, he's invested in the experience and he wants you to have the best outcome because this is kind of a one and done surgery. You don't get any redos with this because it, it just, it's not the way it works. So mm-hmm. it, you kind of got to get it done right the first time. Otherwise you're going to go through a life of hell. And I have friends that, you know, couldn't afford or didn't have insurance so they went, you know, a different route. Again, they're finding their way to that OR table. And, you know, they went a different route and they paid heavily for it because they had bad outcomes, you know, and it was bad technique or bad surgeries. And it's like any surgical procedure. You know, you, you don't know what this doctor is going to do until they do it. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them have had to go back and a lot of them will go to my surgeon to get revisions done and you know he, he gladly does them because he wants you to feel confident and he wants you to you know live your best that's that's his goal is you know you living your best okay um so i think i covered everything you did you really give me an answer as to, well, I guess your answer was that you got your surgery. What's that? As, as far you... as, well, because my question was, what was your biggest struggle? And then how did you handle that? My biggest, and, yeah, my biggest struggle was, was getting to the OR. <laughs> yeah. So, and you, and you handled that. And it sounds like you handled that like a pro, but we don't want people to believe that in the internet in all these years that it was just a piece of cake for you to go through all this. No, it wasn't. It was, um, and you, know, you, I, you did say you just had a touch of counseling and you didn't always have full family support. I did not. And I was relying on that counseling, you know, to, you know, to I, my, your counselor kind of, in that situation becomes your best buddy and you kind of enjoy getting there on Monday, you know, or whenever your appointment is to see them because they're, they feel like you feel like they're the only person in your life that cares about you or understands what you're going through Mm -hmm. and has, has that empathy. But these counselors are pros at what they do. And that process is to weed out those that, probably shouldn't go through the process so are these other counselors you're talking about like that specialize in that they do they specialize okay. in human behavior and they specialize um howard brown uh, by chicago the howard brown uh, group that's they they work with lgbt youth and adults and they um they provide you know it's kind of a one-stop shop type deal which is really good um you know, I, I worry about states like Arkansas 
you know, passing laws that, you know, stop doctors from working on anyone under 18, you know, and if they're under 18, their parents are consenting anyway, if if a doctor is going to do something, they're not just going to take a minor and go, well, you know, here's, here's cross hormone therapy, go do this. You know, there's no doctor that's going to risk impeachment of their license for that. So, you know, this process that we go through. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So are you saying that a parent can consent? They can. For their, and, and you agree with that? I think, I think a supportive parent knows their child. And I think as a parent, you, you have to make a lot of decisions for your children. You know, if you support and believe your child in us as a parent, you can, you know, and you give consent, then that's a bond between you and your child. Ooh, that would just, it would be hard for me as a parent. It would be very hard. And this isn't any comparison, but I'm just going to tell you a decision that I made a long time ago. You were raised Catholic, right? Yes. Okay. So yes. when you got married the first time, did you get married to a Catholic? No. I got married uh I got married to a Protestant in the Wichita Falls County Courthouse. Okay. So I got married in a Catholic church to a non Catholic. And so we had to go through six weeks of counseling. Right. And he had to agree to allow me to raise my children Catholic. Right. Catholic law. Okay. However, not that I'm rebellious, um, but I did not like the idea. I'm not putting anything against the Catholic religion, but I did, I, I went to school from the time I was in kindergarten all the way through of going to church seven days a week. Wow. That's what we had to do. And I could not wait until I was 18 and could get up on a Sunday morning and choose whether or not I wanted to go to church or not. Right. Right. And Saturday I could choose to go out with the rest of my friends instead of stopping and going to um, confession on Saturdays. Right. Right. So, and that my mom was a diehard Catholic, so that would have, I think, hurt her feelings to know that that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't like the fact, I had a lot of friends that went to different churches and some that didn't go to church at all, but I wanted to experience the others. And, you know, the Catholic church is okay, but I didn't ever feel... Like I had anywhere a single priest that made me want to stay awake during their sermon. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and yep. it, and I had friends that you know would invite me to their churches, and my parents you know wouldn't allow it. Um, yeah. So I got to experience that later. So when I was in counseling then to get married to a non-Catholic. 
and he came to the end of it and then said, you know, so he needs to sign these papers saying you can raise your child Catholic. He had no problem right. with that. He just wanted to marry me. But I, this was, and this was a Monsignor. I said, oh, wow. to, I know. I said to him, well, I do. And he said, excuse me. And I said, please don't tell my mom this because it'll break her heart. But, right. you know, you don't, I mean, the, uh, priests are supposed to be confidential when you're counseling. So exactly. Anyway, I said, um, I'm not going to baptize my children into a particular church. I will, right. I will say that I will raise them as a Christian and I will allow them to experience other churches. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will do my best with that, but I will let them make their own decision as to what church they want to go to. Yep. And he said, and that's perfectly fine because I, I know your faith and I, no, I'm not going to tell your mom, I promise. <laughs> And, and, you know, and surprisingly, both my children, now I did send them to Catholic schools, right? um, but they weren't baptized Catholic. So, um, but they both chose to, like, I think my daughter was like 11 when she decided. Right. And I think my son was 10. Um, So... You know, but but they made that decision knowing the way the Catholic Church was. Right. Okay. So I what I'm going back to is a movie that I saw quite a while back. Um and it was called My Sister's Keeper. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you've watched it or not, but it, and it's a true story. But a child was actually made to have her body parts Mm -hmm. given to her sister to save her sister's life. Yep. I've seen this. Okay. Yes. And, you know, she took her parents to court to get emancipated. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't. So when I watched that, I knew right then and there, I don't think we really should have the right to sign something off for our child when they can't possibly know. I I mean, even at 18, I don't think they're mature enough to really know what they want. I think where we're at with, with the trans community and and it's a tough sell either way. Yeah. If I had the chance then and knew then what I know now, I would have begged my parents for that because this is something that is your identity. And it's, and, I, it's, and you know what? I agree with you because you knew all along. Okay. I knew, I knew, but, but, but there's so many kids that are back and forth and they don't know who they are. There, there's adults that, that don't even know what their identity is. 
Well, and, before and, before anybody can can do this with a with a with a child with anybody, honestly, before you can just start cross hormone therapies or blockers, there's there's a regiment of counseling and psychiatric work that has to be done prior to that happening. You can't basically just walk into your your general practitioner and say, hey, doc, my kid just came out of the closet and she feels like a girl. I want to start puberty blockers until we can figure this out. Well, I get that. So before that happens, there are several conversations with psychological professionals with, you know, with gender, specifically trained gender identity uh, counselors that make sure that before they, they do, you know, consent to treatment of a child, they have to, they have to meet these criteria before an endocrinologist is going to go, okay, here's puberty, you know, here's testosterone blockers. People have this tendency to think that this is, you know, wake up one morning and, and just name yourself and, and down the road you go. Not how it works. So, you know, this implied consent is a, it's a living, breathing legal document that follows you your entire life. So if, if these parents, you know, run into the situation where the child, you know, identifies as something other than their sex assigned at birth, you know, they go to their doctor and the doctor points them down this path of before you can come to me and I can do anything, you need to go to psych and talk to them and make sure this is right for that child. But I, I then, get all that. I, I do. I really do get all that. I just, I just feel like you are just a special well and and i just i really feel like i would be myself taking the chance of later on my child blaming me because they decided later on that really wasn't what they wanted well here's here's the trade-off and this happens more than not you come home and your child's hanging from the ceiling fan because they were denied that. Oh, that's an awful picture. It is. And it, and it happens. And I and know. I know parents that have come home to that because the child, the child comes to the parent and says, Hey, this is how I feel. And the parent goes, I think you're crazy and I'm not going to indulge us. You know, the, the best thing that we can do and the discussions that we have to have around this are not, you know, shut down, shut down. This is, you know, this is a fad. This is that, this is that. We have to take every child seriously that comes out and says, this is how I identify. And we need in this country to give them to the professionals and let the professionals make their determination. And if that person comes back and says, yeah, you know, you can still say no, you know, up until the point that you give consent, you know, you can say no and you can withdraw consent, but to deny that child the ability to be diagnosed or assessed by a medical professional because some religious group 
backs your campaign or backs your political pack or backs this or backs that or comes up with this opinion and spreads this around the world or around the United States or around your state or your local community, you as a parent have a choice. And, and I will tell you this, um, every trans person probably has an exit strategy that if it's not going to work out, they know, they know what's, you know, they, they know the other end of that. Um, I wasn't going to last very much longer as a guy. I, if I would not have transitioned you and I would not be having this phone call, I, mm-hmm. I guarantee you. But Jerry, you are older, Jerry, sorry. You were, you were a lot older and wiser and you weren't like, what I'm trying to say is a, a teen or a child mm-hmm. goes through many different phases of changing. They oh, I, I agree. And that's what I'm afraid of. Not you know, with, I, even a professional. I don't care how much counseling you have. They can't change the fact that that child's going to go through changes as they go through their home. I, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. And that's what I would be afraid of. But to understand what, I mean, what's wrong with saying, so I, I, as a parent, I understand and, and I will support you totally, but let's, let's wait a few years for the actual surgery. You can still oh, do the actual absolutely. surgery so, be, so that you know, for sure you've went yes. through, you know, all that and then do mm. it. I would support them totally with that. But for what? me to make that decision for them when they're not, uh-uh. no, 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 and, I, and I'm. Let me back up. I'm not talking about surgical intervention. Okay. What I'm talking about is denying that child the ability to even see a doctor to talk about this. Okay. State of Arkansas says if you're under 18, you have to have your parents' consent. And talk admitted, about it. To talk about it. You okay. can't even get okay. your child, you can't even get your child support through the mental health community because they've made it illegal for doctors to even discuss this with a minor. Okay. So they've denied that child the ability to even have that conversation. Okay. So well, I was totally on the wrong path with you. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. So yeah, surgically there's not a surgeon in the world that's going to take a minor and go through this, this process. One, they wouldn't have the length of penal skin if it was a male to female patient to even perform the surgery. They, you know, you, you got to wait for, you know, adulthood, you know, to, to become, you know, a candidate to become, right you know, to have enough material to work with. Okay. So that makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 there's just natural limitations that, you know, doctors, doctors can't create this, you know, they, there is another procedure, but that's a different subject. Right. Um, there are, there are laws out there in States, Texas, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. It's, it's a lot of your deep red conservative States that have said, we don't believe in this. The Bible is the only answer. And, you know, we're going to go with God on this. And you come home as a parent 
and you don't have access to this for your child because the state has deemed it illegal. So they've deemed it illegal to even discuss it. And it's disgusting because you now take away an avenue of, of mental health for this child. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, um, teenage years suck. And if you're faced with something like this and you're questioning your identity from, from what you were born as, you need to have that discussion with your child because what happens is these, these kiddos feel like they're abandoned mm-hmm. because now, now they can't even seek medical help legally. Right. So what do they do? They go home, they swallow a bottle of pills and, you know, they steal a bottle of vodka out of the liquor cabinet and mom and dad comes home and, you know, where's Becky at? You know, dinner time, you walk into the bedroom, a kid's stone cold laying on their bed because they overdosed. And and that's what we're seeing a lot of is the suicide rate in in this process is pretty high because nobody wants to talk about it. You know, nobody wants to allow this to even be a subject. So what do these people do? They, you know, the next, the next thing is I'm out of here. You know, I I can't live like this. Hmm? Not as much now as it used to be. Right. Cause that's what I was telling you. Like my son's friends and not his friends, but his. In a, a, lot of these, year, a lot of these a, kids, a lot, a lot of, a lot of his acquaintances, a lot of people he knew, so on and so forth, were were out there experiencing, trying, seeing who they were, whatever. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and that's and, part of being and, a teenager. And it was totally, but it was totally accepted. That's what I'm saying. It is now, yes. I, right. I mean, this was just two years ago for him. Yeah. I mean, he did have his own personal opinion that he shared with me, and that's okay. He had a yep. problem watching two guys kiss. And but that's he, it wasn't a judgmental thing. It just he didn't he didn't, didn't get feel com yeah, he did it wasn't his thing. Exactly. And that's and that's okay. And I you that's know, he, absolutely fine. But he didn't make a judgment over it. He, you know, he still talked to them, you know, whatever. But he was uncomfortable with it. And and he didn't tell anybody but me about it. Right. And, you know, talk to and me about okay. it. And it's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. That's what I told what's, him. What's not okay is is to not have that discussion. Right. And, and you know, to to disallow that discussion because... You know, I'm not going to slight anybody for their religious opinions or their views. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm highly spiritual. I I am a believer. I'm a Christian, and I'm a transsexual woman at the same time. And people have a hard time wrapping their head. Well, you know, how could you do that? Well, I corrected something that was a biological problem. You know, and and that's my answer to that. But. To let the state come in and tell you as a parent that you cannot have that conversation with a medical professional is a big overreach. And no, I agree. And and you need to be able to have those resources as a parent to raise your child. But 
the the commonality in these states are they're deeply conservative and they they just don't want to have this as they they think if they don't have the conversation it doesn't exist the problem is this is his has existed since the beginning of of mankind okay this this has always been a problem for people to discuss this and you know you can go back into scriptures you know you can go back into you know the first catechisms and and look at this you know and, and i graduated from creighton university i graduated from a private catholic college you know the harvard of the midwest mm-hmm. um and congratulations on that thank you um you know you you were you were mandated four years of theology the thing that people don't realize about sending your your child to a catholic school like creighton is they're going to explore the methodist faith you know all the protestant faith um hinduism judaism you know every sect out there your child is going to be exposed to at creighton university i will guarantee you that because i know the head of the theology department and her my, my mom got her master's in theology <laughs> just just my, to learn about all the other religions exactly not, not to teach it just to learn it just to learn it and to understand it mm-hmm. and and to understand things is you know is or to be educated in something is to understand it um you know you can look at you know the big buzz now is critical race theory we don't even want to teach that right well wait a wait a minute wait a minute if you go to you go to a liberal arts college they discuss marxism they 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 outly out outwardly teach you what marxism is they teach you what communism is they teach you what socialism is they teach you all these forms but you have the discussion it doesn't mean that they are pushing that on you as a curriculum but they're educating you as of to what they are it's your your position or the learner's position to apply critical thinking to that and make a determination from that point but to not even discuss it that's a problem you know and and you know, we're not even going to discuss it well we're going to make it illegal to discuss CRT in Florida okay so why why are you taking that ability away from people if if you're that afraid of it embrace it and and, and that's my theory when you're afraid to jump jump because if you don't, you'll always be right there where you're at at that point in time, and you'll never move. So in, embrace these things. You know, this, this discussion about, you know, kids shouldn't learn about the trans community or the LGBT community. Why? They, you know, give them the information so they can make an informed decision. If you're going to buy a car at a car dealership, let's, let's break this down into what a lot of people do. You're going to go buy a car at a car dealership. Do you walk into that car dealership and go, I don't know what I want? Most people have done the research. You know, you're going to go spend, you know, $50,000 on a new car or whatever it's going to cost. You don't walk into a dealership and go, I want a blue car. No, it's, I want this style car. I've done my research. I'm informed. Therefore, this is what I want. 
You know, this is what I'm looking for. Price is irrelevant because you're not even at that part of the discussion yet. You're still trying to find the identity of the object that you want. So you have a child that has all these ideas and hormones flow into their body. And they all of a sudden say, this is how I identify. This is my identity. It's not my sex. It's how I identify. And, and I agree that identity can change tomorrow. But give them the tools to make the decision. By not talking about it, you're, you're setting them up for failure. And you, I, I have never set my children up for failure. I have given my children all the leeway in the world and said, here's the information. You research it. You make an informed decision based on what you've researched. Don't just, okay, this is how I feel. This is what I'm going to do. My kids will make an informed decision, and they're better off for it because it's helped them in their life. I mean, they, they make life decisions, but they make informed life decisions. They don't, they don't make emotional decisions. They're, right. they're, they were taught very young. Emotional decisions are a pitfall. Don't do that. So, you know, parental consent where it comes in is, okay, doc, you have permission to talk to my child about that, but I'm going to be here and I'm going to be part of this conversation. And I'm going to help guide my child because they're sponges. They, they, they do what they do, what they see. They do, they, they mimic us as parents. So if we go around limiting people and limiting them on what they can know or what they should know, or, you know, or at least where to get information to make an informed decision, they're going to keep going down that their entire life. Well, you know, I, I don't agree with it, so I'm just going to say no. And that's not a decision. That's a reaction. And there's right. a difference between reaction and decision. Right. So, so we become very reactive, especially when you start having this trans discussion, even with the adult sector. And the general public's vision of a transsexual woman is a guy standing in the ladies' bathroom in a dress trying to peek over the, the door of the stall. Now, is that ever going to happen? Probably not, because if it does, it's not going to be a trans woman that does that. A trans woman wants to do what every other woman wants to do when she walks in the bathroom. She wants, she wants to relieve herself. That's, that's, that's her goal. Wash her hands and, and leave, you know, and, and not dilly dally and not spend eight hours because I've never had a conversation in a women's room other than a nod of the head and out the door. You know, we don't stand around in there and, and gab about uh, the bachelor. <laughs> you know? We don't, we don't, we don't discuss our, our, our ups and downs. You know, it's, I'm here to use the restroom. I'm leaving. Um, However, it's, it's not... I did have a transvestite come in and do that. Did you really? Mm-hmm. See, now that's 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 a complete difference, right, right there. Right, right. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I've never, I've never. That person just has problems. Though. They have problems. They have a transvestite is different from a transsexual woman oh, I know. in. 
in that a transvestite does this for different reasons. Right. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a fantasy. It's a fetish. It's you know some type of leading identity some type crisis too. <laughs> I I don't think it's even identity at that point. I think it's I think it's more I think that is more of a a, a stimulus. Um a transsexual yeah, woman ha, gets no gets no pleasure out of waking up and throwing a dress on other than hey that looks pretty. That's what I want to wear today. Right. You know, like any other like any other woman. You know, she lays her clothes out that the night before she's going out or going to work the next day because that's what she wants to do. And and our goal, you know, if if we're going to be singular, is the same as any other woman's goal. Get through the day and get home. And sometimes that's a struggle. But the outside pressure of, okay, you know, this is this is this is the biggest thing that that really really gets me, and I come from a world where I hold two professional licenses. Um, I am I am a certified aircraft mechanic with the FAA, and I hold an airframe and power plant certificate. I, in the past, I have held an inspection authorization when I was working on smaller aircraft. You had to ha- have an aircraft inspection authorization. And it was more testing and education through the FAA for another rating. So one of the parts of holding an aviation license is you must be of sound mind and body. So people go out and they say, oh, these, these trans people are all mentally ill. And my parents even chimed in on this. Well, you can't hold an aviation license as a mechanic and be mentally ill. So the FAA even has a program for name changes and gender changes on your on your certificate on your on your license so you know they've they've come a long way with that they don't pull your license you know when you become trans or you come out as trans um, to hold a driver's license you cannot be mentally ill in most states to possess a driver's license state just doesn't allow that it's part of the rules you know, beyond that, I my driver's license, I have a commercial driver's license. We have background checks. We have medical. We have all these things that play into holding a commercial driver's license. At the same time, you cannot be mentally ill and, and operate a commercial motor vehicle. So the argument of trans people are mentally ill is completely bunk because I have... 10 friends that are in, in professional positions. I've um, never, ever thought of that as being mentally ill. A lot of, a lot of people will, you'll see it on social media. Oh, it's a mental illness and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's so far from the truth. I mean, obviously it's, it's a reaction. It's not a decision, but I have friends that one is a career airline pilot. She flies 747s out of Alaska. Um, one, two, three of the transsexual surgeons on the planet, Dr. Marcy Bowers, Dr. Jenny McGinn, and Dr. Um, Ellie Lay are all transsexuals 
that have undergone transition and our surgeons, our plastic surgeons, and perform these surgeries. Let's see. I have three friends that are um, regular general practitioner doctors. Um, I have one friend, and she is a um, nuclear power plant manager and operator, operating engineer for a nuclear power plant. She transitioned. So there's a multitude of people out there in professional positions that have transitioned. You know, and it's not just the fashion industry or, you know, the the beauty industry. It's, you know, real life jobs that, you know, trans people are holding that are safety sensitive. So I get I get a lot of I get a lot of laughs out of that, you know, and they say, Oh, you it's it's a it's a mental illness. Well, no, it's not a mental illness and you know, the diet the um, Diagnostics and Statistics Manual actually rewrote it um, for their last revision. You know, that says, you know, this is not this is not a psychosexual problem. You know, this is, you know, it's all defined in the DSM. So, you know, the DSM five lays out what this is, and WPATH standards are the creation of the standards of care for trans people but nobody knows knows those two publications exist because they're not politicized like the fact that you know the president just signed an order that says that schools must allow trans students to use the bathroom of their choice okay so so the schools sign off on us what's that mean well that means that a man can walk into the girl's bathroom. No, it doesn't. It means that a trans person who identifies as female has the right to do that. Not just any kid can walk in there and say they're trans. They have to go through the process before any, before they can act on any of this. So there's, there's so much out there that's just misinformation and disinformation that, you know, it's, it's meant to derail and discredit. Well, we could go on and on like this all night long. Days and days and days. Yes. But unfortunately, they only allow me so much time. Right. And and it's been absolutely wonderful and very informative. Thank you. I appreciate so much you coming on. Um, I want to wish you good luck in New York. I'm still super jealous. Super jealous. (laughs) I love New York. Come to New York and come to the show. I wish I could. Oh. I will walk you in. I will walk anybody in on the red carpet if they come to the show. <laughs> it's it's going to be September 11th, uh, south of Hudson at Hudson Yards in the High Line. And, you know, we're walking where, you know, a lot of icons have walked as models. Um, you know, the Hudson Yards is the High Line. It's Chelsea. It's, you know, the it's the garment district. It's, it's where all the shows have been held for years. And, you know, it's an honor to be able to work with talent that I work with and, you know, to, to glean knowledge from them in my craft and become better, you know, and, and evolve. So, yeah. 
So can you tell, um, can you give your information out for Instagram so we can have people follow I can. you? You can follow me on Instagram at Jarrah Caitlin and it's J-E-R-R-A-K-A-I-T-L-Y-N-N. And you can find me on Facebook as well as Jarrah Whitaker. My Facebook is wide open. So if you want a friend request me, by all means do. Okay. Um, also, if you want to make a post on Instagram with the place at New York. And I will. That would be great. I will. Oh, and a little bit of exciting news. Mm-hmm. I have hired a um, publicist and they are working on my website in Chicago as we speak. So Jara Caitlin will be up um, hopefully before Fashion Week. And we'll get this up and running. So you can come see my website, come see the pictures, and we'll be adding content to it all the time as content changes. Um, There's actually a podcast section. So at some point when this is all finished, I can add this to the website as well. And you can house a copy of it there. So, Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. And thanks for having me. You're so welcome. And I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.